1: Welcome to this Tuesday edition of the Hagman Report. Today is Tuesday, March the March sixth, twenty eighteen. It is great to be here today. We got a fantastic show lined up for you today. I'm going to be hosting the show with John. My father Doug is in a meeting, an important meeting dealing with the business. So he's not going to be with us today, but John will be with us today, and we are going to be taking the first half hour of news then in the second segment. We are going to be joined by Bill Chapman. He's a Hollywood insider and much more. Then, Daniel Horowitz will be joining us in Hour 2. He is always a great guest, conservativereview.com. Then we take the show out each Tuesday in Hour 3 with Stan Deo. we got a lot to get into today. There's a whole lot going on in the news. If you're paying attention to the mainstream media, You see the headline, Gary Cohen out as Trump's top economic advisor. I have not seen the coverage by the media on this, but I imagine that they're painting this as some kind of doom and gloom scenario continuing to show the pattern of destruction and chaos inside the Trump White House. But what's really going on with Gary Cohen's resignation as the top economic advisor? This from CNBC Gary Cohen has resigned as the White House Chief Communication Advisor. Cohen's planned departure comes on the heels of a decision by President Donald Trump to impose stiff tariffs on steel and aluminum imports. The former Goldman Sachs president had strongly opposed these tariffs. So, Gary Cohen has resigned from the Trump administration. Donald Trump is doing something that he has said he was going to do during his campaign, which was being tough on other countries when it came to trade with the United States. We saw how he got out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. We saw how he wants to renegotiate NAFTA. He wants a fair deal for not only the American worker, but the American economy. And we have seen such unfair practices where we have been getting the short end of the stick well, Gary Cohen, the former Goldman Sachs president, is a free trade advocate. And his departure, which will come in a few weeks, uh, is directly due to Trump sticking with and imposing stiff tariffs on aluminum and steel imports. <clears throat> in a prepared statement, Cohen said, It has been an honor to serve my country and enact pro-growth economic policies to benefit the American people. In particular, the passage of the historic tax reform. I am am grateful to the President for giving me this opportunity and wish him and the administration great success in the future. In his own statement, Trump said, Gary has been my chief economic advisor and did a superb job in driving our agenda, helping to deliver historic tax cuts and reforms and unleashing the American economy once again. So, is there a scandal here and will the media turn it into a scandal absolutely i bet they will but all in all uh you know cohen's sticking with his guns he he's more of a free trade proponent so he is out as he does not agree with the tariffs that are going to be imposed now many people are saying that this is the reason that the stock market has been so volatile over the last few days is because it is going to hurt businesses, not only uh, in the U.S., but across the globe. <clears throat> and we've seen some pushback. For I think it was from Britain who started to impose a heavy tax on Jack Daniels and another popular American import. I can't think of it off the top of my head. But many people are saying, is this the future of the trade wars? Are the trade wars here? This is something that we're going to continue to look at and talk about. As we are moving forward, and, and this is an issue <clears throat> really that's not going to go anywhere. Uh, we see that the policies and what Trump ran on, uh, his promises, campaign promises, are what he is sticking to. And even though we see this turnover in the White House and the news media making it seem as though it's chaotic and it's uh, disorganized and it's a mess, we would have to admit that the Trump agenda has been moving forward, full steam ahead, and he is getting a lot done. I think the Heritage Foundation did a poll last week which showed 67% of the Trump agenda has been completed. Now, I don't know if I'd go that high, but we do know that he has accomplished a lot. We do not have a border wall. We still have the DACA issue wide open, and there are a number of other issues where he is going to intervene and, and try to change things for the better. But we are still only less than two years into the Trump presidency. Anyway, uh, Cohen, this article of goes on to, to point out some interesting things. Uh, it, it, we don't have to get into it because it gets into Charlottesville and the, the, uh, neo Nazis and white supremacists and, uh, some of his statements that he made when these events were going on in, uh, back in, Late May, I think it was, last year. But anyway, Gary Cohen out as the economic advisor for the Trump administration and expect the United States media to turn this into a, a huge scandal. I want, there's a few other things that I want to talk about, and I know John's got some stuff on Vladimir Putin and the nuclear program that we're going to get into. Uh, but but this, this is about guns. This one story I want to make sure that we touch on. Out of Seattle, and this is from today, tyranny begins in seattle as man who broke no laws has guns confiscated in what many believe is the beginning of a constitutional crisis seattle police have taken the distinct honor of being the first law enforcement agency in the state to put out an extreme risk protection order or erpo into practice by forcibly confiscating guns belonging to a seattle resident without a warrant no arrest or criminal charges were brought the new red flag law, which has taken hold in other states already, allows the courts and law enforcement to take away guns from individuals they deem are dangerous. A man living in the Belltown neighborhood of Seattle, Washington, became the first individual in the state to have his firearms confiscated without any formal arrest or charge. The man was not identified by authorities. But what were the reasons the police acted like the East German Stasi in a raid on a citizen's home who hadn't broken any laws. Listen to this. Neighbors complained that the man stared at people through storefront windows while wearing a holstered firearm. Even though open carry is legal in the jurisdiction and he was well within his rights, unless there was any anti-staring laws in that part of the state, nobody seems to know what the, the problem is. Resident Snowflakes of... This knee jerk town complained that the man openly carrying made them feel uncomfortable and unsafe. I looked for and could not find anything in the open carry statute that mentions a prohibit, a prohibiting of making other people feel uncomfortable and unsafe. He was rowing the hallway with a 25 caliber automatic, Tony Montana recalled, showing his total ignorance of open carry laws and of gun, of guns, since handguns are not automatic, but semi-automatic. It created a lot of fear, obviously, because I didn't know if he was coming after me or if he was just going to start shooting up the place. Anyway, these are the new legal standards that police are allowed to use in this new state law to forcibly violate a man's Second Amendment rights even though he has done nothing wrong and posed no threat to anybody. Now, let's think about this for a minute, and John will jump in on this conversation with me. Pennsylvania is an open carry state. I don't know if it has this law as washington state does this erpo law this extreme risk protection order but if somebody's offended or concerned about you or me or another citizen open carrying apparently that's grounds enough for the police to confiscate the firearm sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen <laughs> indeed it
2: does and uh, joe it's a pleasure to join you here this evening uh, Tuesday March 6th on the Hagman Report and I'd be remiss if I didn't uh say off the top thank you Doug Hagman for the honor of sitting uh in for you this evening of course Joe you know that your dad has been uh working a number of different avenues but particularly with the censorship smackdown we've been dealing with
1: the last two weeks and I know he's had a very busy day but that- yeah there's two pieces Hagman Report one on the Doug Hagman radio show uh it's a message to listeners of the Doug Hagman radio show go to hagmanreport.com you can read that also I put a piece up that I wrote today, The Censorship of the Internet, Part 1.
2: Thank you for that, Joe. And we're going to, in uh, the the bottom half of this hour, we're going to cover with debut guest Bill Chapman, who's a Hollywood expat himself. Uh, Bill and I did On the Objective, the podcast together two weeks ago, and it was a phenomenal podcast, and everyone can find that at OnTheObjective.org. It's really just the testimonies of two men, one from the East Coast, one from the West Coast, and how we got out of Hollywood in order that we may better serve the Lord. But back to this carry issue in Washington. Joe, uh, a lot of folks don't know, Washington is one of the only shall-issue states left in the country. And what that simply means is when you prove three months' residency in the state of Washington, you simply go to the Sheriff's Department, you're fingerprinted, and they shall-issue your concealed carry permit. It's not a may issue or can issue, it's shall issue. It it will happen unless you've prevented yourself from the right to conceal carry because you have felonies on the books. Now, help me out with this story. Was this gentleman carrying a shoulder rig under a jacket?
1: Uh, No, according uh, according to this article, he had a waist holster. He was wearing a holster. A holstered firearm. So it was just an open carry on his belt.
2: Well, in most counties in Washington, he would be fine. Uh, in the county I lived in, in Clallam County, up on the Olympic Peninsula, uh, it was fairly common to see someone, typically someone in the building trades, uh, open carrying. You know, it, it actually wasn't that well, big a deal.
1: See, this is the problem. The whole state of Washington is an open carry state. Yes, it is. And uh, it is legal to open carry. And he was well within his rights to do so. Now, a person reporting him, a person having a problem, calling the police, saying there's a man who is carrying a gun, the police should be able to discern a, a person who is open carrying. I mean, we we see stuff like this all the time as as investigators. You look for patterns of behavior. P- people, uh, police officers in these jurisdictions who patrol the streets, who patrol these streets normally on their quote unquote beat. You know should have a good idea, a good sense of the the citizens uh in their in their jurisdiction their their behaviors, you know who the shop owners are who who the troublemakers are, and you would think that an average or a good police officer would be able to discern the difference between somebody who is open carrying and does open carry versus somebody who poses a threat with a firearm. It'd be like me calling the police right now. On my dad and saying, you know, he has a, uh, a, a gun on top of, uh, his nightstand and it concerns me that I might get shot and the police coming in and taking the gun away. In the situation, the police should talk to the person who called the police and say, sir, you're not in any danger. This man's not breaking the law. He's legally allowed to do this. He's well within his legal rights. He's not bothering you. If he does bother you, then give us a call back. But no, they have to go harass the other person, the law abiding abiding citizen who is well within his legal right to carry a gun, doing nothing wrong, and turn his life upside down because somebody else is feeling uncomfortable or unsafe with really just at the present at the sight of the gun. This is what the mainstream media propaganda, this is what the New World Order, Deep State, uh, you know, evil people have done uh, with the minds of the American people At just for some people the mere sight of a gun Equals terror, and they're offended. They're shaking, probably you know, relieving themselves in their pants, and this has to stop. <laughs>
2: well, well, Joe, it's certainly successful controlled conditioning as promulgated by D.C. and uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder, who famously said, infamously said, we need to brainwash these people about guns. And I know you've
1: seen that clip many oh, times, yeah. as have I. In fact, I just retweeted we that really about two weeks just, ago. Uh, we really just need to, to brainwash kids on, yeah, on uh, guns. He's talking about public uh, service announcements. Yeah. Eric Holder back in Baltimore, <laughs> when he was, the uh, I think, the attorney general there.
2: This coming from the man who somehow thought Fast and Furious was a good idea.
1: Oh, I think he's, he still does. He's coming from the man who thinks he can run for president in 2020, being the only attorney general in the history of the United States to be held in contempt of Congress.
2: Oh, if he's going to run in 2020, I'll send him five bucks. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Joe, let me, uh, let me take a couple minutes and talk about uh, the oh, recent man. conversation, well, the recent presentation that Russian President Vladimir Putin made to the Duma, which is the Russian legislature. So this is like uh, if President Trump went up to Capitol Hill. So
1: would this be like a State of the Union? It was. Yes, it was. And and, and folks need to remember this. We have, for a year and a half, the United States political and media establishment have been painting Russia as the enemy of the world. They have basically said that they are guilty of manipulating our elections. They have said that they're all cronies and crooks and that they are uh, somehow the biggest threat to America. At the same time, Russia and the U.S. have other... Uh, political, uh, geopolitical problems. The encroachment of NATO on and around Russia is a huge problem. Uh, the stuff with the Ukrainian and what and Ukraine and whatnot. And John, th- you're going to get into this in this piece uh, that we have from Putin because this is so important that people understand what has been going on. It's not just the U.S. versus Russia. This is NATO versus Russia, and NATO is the basically, uh, you know, the Western army well
2: at one time they were i think nato's much more than that i would argue that nato is the the muscle nato is the teeth behind the uh state corporate oligarchy of western christendom but uh but, but we're in agreement in spirit absolutely this uh let's start with bloomberg uh putin unveils unstoppable nuclear nuclear weapons in warning to us and this happened on March 1st. Vladimir Putin used his State of the Nation speech on Thursday, that would be this previous Thursday, to warn the United States that Russia has new high-technology tech, high nuclear weapons that he said could overcome any defenses. Quote, Efforts to contain Russia have failed. Face it. End quote. The Russian president said in a nearly two-hour address. He illustrated with video clips uh, of the new arms, which included underwater drones, intercontinental missiles, And a hypersonic system, he said, quote, heads for its target like a meteorite. The unusual display of military might was the most dramatic element of Mr. Putin's speech, which started with pledges to deliver a decisive breakthrough to boost living standards and raise spending on health and infrastructure. Mr. Putin used the annual address to lay out priorities for the fourth presidential term he is expected to win easily in elections this month. Now, I have to move very quickly through this. I wish I had more time. But nonetheless, this was a classic State of the Union. Eric is uh, showing up on the screen, uh, uh, President Union, addressing uh, the Duma. And he began to play a video that I want to go through quickly for our listeners and viewers. Eric, if we can go to slide two. And uh, slide two simply indicates a the transportation of this new, as uh, President Putin said, it hypersonic system that heads for its target like a
1: meteorite. And uh, Eric, if we can move to slide three, please. If people understood the technology behind missiles, and I mean, basically, you can on a missile you can put you know GPS coordinates, you can uh it, it can lock on it can travel and navigate around mountains and buildings if need be it, it, somebody could shoot a missile from russia with you know uh the the laser pointer on on with the back our, of your head and with our precision yes <laughs> you know hit that target even if it's moving
2: so this this image uh shows the the launch facility the launch capability of the missile and Derek when you're ready if we can shoot over to uh, to number 5 it gives people the view of the missile system in its bunker and the enormity of the missile. And this story gets very interesting very quickly. Uh, in fact, um, what President Putin indicated in his speech, and it was really qualified. Now, that image shows the missile in its bunker. And, Eric, when you're ready, we'll go ahead and bring up... uh at your uh, At your convenience Let's bring spring up five and six we 're going to show the missile launch its orbit, and ultimately its target and then i 'm going to take a moment to explain Joe in part who paid for this technology, and that 's what 's really going to blow listeners away.
1: okay, that last picture you' shown in about thirty years if it 's like America will be a doomsday bunker for
2: <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is the launch uh, this is the launch facility now we 've got the missile this is uh, black and white striped. Uh, rocket is the actual missile coming up out of its bunker. And momentarily, when Eric switches the slide, we'll see it, uh, begin to ignite. This is the pre-ignition. Uh, and this was a short video. It was probably 20 seconds long. It was very powerful in its impact through the different images. So this is the pre-ignition. And then probably my favorite picture. Eric, go ahead and switch the slide again. This is the, this is the full ignition as the missile goes vertical in its ballistic flight, ultimately ballistic flight trajectory. And in a moment, we will show you how that missile. So that's the that's the big the big bang right there, Joe. Uh, and then we have sort of a, a, an establishing shot. Go ahead and switch the slide, Eric, of the missile leaving um, Russian sovereign ground and heading up into the atmosphere. And uh, the the interesting there's uh, Doug Hagman when I showed him this prior to the show, he, he thought that this was an interesting flight pattern. Eric, when you're ready, the next slide shows the flight pattern. Then we're going to show the actual, what they call the Merv. We're going to show the the multiple entry uh, warheads opening up and departing from the missile, and then we'll end this presentation with where the missiles were headed. Now, remember, this this is President Vladimir Putin giving a State of the Union the Russian version of the State of the Union we just had the last week in January with President Trump. So... That slide shows the trajectory of the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. Now, remember, listeners and viewers, this is a single missile. Eric, let's go ahead and advance the slide. But the single missile carries far more damage capability than just a single missile with a single warhead uh, attached to it. Now, in this picture, you can clearly see that the cone of the missile has uh, been ejected And every one of those little miniature-looking rockets on top, those are all warheads. Those are all programmed, as Joe was saying a moment ago. They're programmed with GPS coordinates to land in different areas. And what the well, you reason got,
1: you got your your
2: AR15 you know you can uh, shoot those down right <laughs> well some people think they can that <laughs> might take an AR10 uh Eric let's go ahead and advance to the last slide this is why this presentation is so mission critical for Hagman listeners and viewers uh, to see tonight and if you're if you're listening to us on Blog Talk Radio or Global Star please go back to the YouTube feed and take a look at so those are all the multiple entry uh, warheads, and you can see very clearly that they are re-entering the atmosphere. And where are they yeah. headed, Joe? Yeah, that's, some people that's say that's Florida. It looks like Florida. I, well, no, that is Florida. And uh, interestingly, doing a little background on Florida, that would uh, that would immediately oh, yeah, annihilate both CENTCOM and SOCOM. So that would that would handicap the U.S. military for the CENTCOM, which is Central Command. That's what runs the Middle East, as well as SOCOM. Which is the command that runs Central and South America?
1: Uh, but don't forget, you got you got in uh, the mountains of Colorado, you got Cheyenne Mountain in West Virginia, I believe. But yes, extensive damage that would do, and many people are asking, is Vladimir Putin sending a threat?
2: Well, I'm not so sure it's, if it's a threat. What most of these articles are suggesting is it's a it's a final warning. Joe, I know we've got about uh, two two and a half minutes, so I'll wrap this up in a big, pretty bow. What our listeners need to understand is, uh, just as the intelligence agencies in the United States use off-book funding on the social media platforms, and I wrote about that extensively this weekend, we also have proof that they that the the uh, tech companies, primarily out of Silicon Valley, have entered into. A an international venture with Russia, and the name of the project is the Skolovko uh, project. Sorry, my Russian's a little, a little bit rough there. But um, what it is is Russia's attempt at a new Silicon Valley. And uh, ever since the United States did a unilateral withdrawal from the uh, ABM treaty back in two thousand two, Russia kind of found itself not sure what course to take with its missile defense program. Uh, I would also note that the United States currently has over 30 missile cruisers and a commensurate number of destroyers just outside international boundaries of Russian ports uh, in the Blue Ocean, and this makes President Vladimir Putin very concerned, and also you can see in his demeanor during this speech at Duma, uh, more than a little irritated. But here's where it gets tricky. This is why this is on the Hagman Report tonight. This new project, the Skolkovo project, the new Russian Silicon Valley, was funded in part by major U.S. tech companies that have contributed to the Clinton Foundation and heated calls by the State Department when it was headed by Hillary Clinton to invest in a Kremlin effort to develop a Russian equivalent of Silicon Valley. And that, again, is the Skolkovo Innovation Center. It is spelled S-K-O-L-K-O-V-O. Supporting the Skolkovo Innovation Center on the outskirts of Moscow was part of the attempted reset of U.S.-Russia relations early in Obama's first term. Skipping down a bit. There are 17 entities that collectively committed tens of millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation including <laughs> hello google intel and cisco who were among 28 key partners identified in the in, identified in 2012 by the Skolkovo Foundation. By 2012, U.S. military researchers were warning that Skolkovo ventures included work related to Russian defense capabilities. Flash, okay, now Peter Schweitzer, I'd be remiss if I didn't credit Peter Schweitzer and thank Doug Hagman for his uh, work in helping me prep for this piece. Peter Schweitzer wrote Clinton Cash in 2015. You absolutely must pick up a copy of Clinton Cash. Peter Schweitzer Uh, lays this all out in a linear fashion. But at the end of the day, three days ago, President Vladimir Putin stood before the Duma and demonstrated to his heads of state a video showing a MIRV uh, ICBM with multiple reentry vehicles right over the top of Florida, suggesting annihilation of both CENTCOM and SOCOM and a massive handicapping of U.S. military forces around the world. And guess where the money came from? It came from Cisco, Intel, Google, and the Clinton Foundation. My
1: button's bigger than yours, <laughs> Tr- Putin trolling Trump. It's uh, a very interesting story, John. It's something that we have to follow. When we see the regional battles uh, with in Ukraine and NATO, the complaints of Russia uh, about NATO encroaching and putting up missile defense systems, such as the THAAD system in South Korea, Uh, systems in japan as well as a few other european nations like poland you start to see this pushback pushback from vladimir putin and of course they're going to tout their nuclear capabilities as they feel that them being surrounded by this nations of new world order globalist agenda we're going to be right back after this break with bill chapman don't go anywhere stay tuned back to this audio-only edition of the Hagman Report on this Tuesday, March 6, 2018. We are on audio-only tonight, so don't try to adjust your dial if you're not getting video. It's because it is only the audio. we got a great segment coming to you now where you're going to be joined by Bill Chapman. I want to mention one thing real quick before we bring him on. We have talked at great length, probably more this year, Uh, than anything else about Jeff Sessions' inability to hold people accountable with all of these ongoing scandals and the evidence of those scandals being in the public. We still have Peter Strauch working in the FBI, Rod Rosenstein in the DOJ, on and on and on. While Trey Gowdy and another senator have issued a letter to Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein formally requesting a second special counsel, House Judiciary Committee, Chairman, Bob Goodlate and Representative Trey Gowdy on Tuesday demanded the appointment of a special counsel to investigate conflicts of interest and decisions made and not made by current and former Justice Department officials in 2016 and 2017, noting that public interest requires the action. Gowdy penned a letter Tuesday to Attorney General Jeff Sessions and to Rod Rosenstein. Matters have arisen both recently and otherwise, which necessitate the appointment of a special counsel. We do not make this observation and attendant request lightly, Gowdy said. Will there be a response from Sessions? We know this needs to happen. Anyway, we'll bring on our guest. John, I'm going to turn it over to you.
2: Well, Joe, thank you so much. This is exciting for me. Uh, Bill Chapman, uh, for our listeners, is a debut guest here at the Hagman Report, but I would be very surprised if we don't hear from him again. Uh, Bill is a recent expat uh, from Hollywood. Now, when I say Hollywood, I'm using it colloquially uh, to indicate the film business writ large, whereas I come from Southern California and the actual geographic location of Hollywood. Bill comes from one of the other real hotspot areas of film production in the United States, which is Atlanta, Georgia, and I can tell you from... First-hand experience, first-hand knowledge. Atlanta, Georgia, in the last uh, six to eight years has become ginormous for feature film production. Warner Brothers put a huge prop house out there. They have enormous sound stages. They're building a lot of infrastructure in Georgia to support uh, filmmaking in the United States. Some of Bill's credits include Waco, two of the Hunger Games uh, franchises, as well as The Fifth Wave, Anti man you can find him on IMDB just type in Bill Chapman now he's listed under the camera department, but Bill is one of those titles that few people understand. He's a grip, and grips are without grips. there is no film set and uh bill uh will tell you a little bit more about that, but I'm very excited because uh it's rare for those of you who have been with the show a long time. You may recall my uh freshman efforts with the Hagman report being this one voice out of Hollywood trying to explain what it's like and explain what's going on. And when I found Bill Chapman, it was such a blessing because all of a sudden I had this this new friend uh, who speaks the language and understands exactly how things work. And it only took me two seconds in, in speaking with Bill offline to realize this guy's the real deal. His IMDb is exactly what he's done with the last several years of his life. But we brought Bill on sort of last minute this evening because he penned an article, Joe. At HagmanReport.com. He actually wrote two. He wrote a great article about QAnon approximately a week ago. Uh, To LARP or not to LARP, Q is the question. But the article we're going to talk about right out of the gate tonight with our guest, Bill Chapman, (laughs) is The Anatomy of a Lie. And Bill is not just a Hollywood expat, but a very fine up-and-coming citizen investigator, investigative journalist, who managed to contact Colton Hobb and Glenn Hobb, the Hobb family, who our listeners will recall from last week got into that huge kerfuffle with CNN. The big argument being, did CNN rewrite uh, Colton Hobb, the survivor of Parkland shootings, questions? Did they submit questions to him? Just how legitimate was that town hall that Dana Loesch was so ignominiously threatened and escorted out of? That being said, Bill Chapman, welcome to the
3: Hagman Report. How are you this evening? John, it's great to be a part of the show. Joe, I really appreciate y'all having me on. I'm I'm super excited, a little
1: nervous, but uh, let's jump into it. Absolutely, and it's great to have you. No no reason to be nervous. We're just sitting here talking amongst ourselves, and it's, it's all right. John's more, probably more nervous than you are, so don't worry about that.
4: <laughs>
1: I'm always nervous.
3: <laughs> I'm just well, uh... glad my Skype worked. I'm just glad my Skype
2: worked. Well, so is tech, Eric. Uh, Bill, let's do this. Take about uh, take about a minute. Tell uh, our listeners a little bit more about yourself, how the Lord got you out of Hollywood, and then let's jump right into uh, the primary reason we brought you on tonight, which is you have you have Bill Chapman the smoking gun that puts an end to the entire CNN Colton Hobb. Did they write the questions? Did they not write the questions? You, sir, have the proof. You, you're ready to go to court, correct, Bill?
3: Pretty much, pretty much. I hope it doesn't come to anything like that. But as far as my background, um, in 2012, uh, I had moved uh, from uh, Knoxville down to Atlanta and uh, was looking to uh, basically change careers. Got into the film industry and uh, started working as a boom operator, the guy holding the microphone on set, and. Long story short, ended up becoming a grip, joined the film union, uh, traveled back and forth between Atlanta and Albuquerque, New Mexico, working on projects in both cities. A uh, lot of feature films, a lot of television work. Um, and late in 2017, uh, the Lord really started to work on me and started to point out the not only the just the sinful nature of Hollywood in general, uh, the movie business and, and the content that's being promoted, the, the lifestyle that is being normalized, uh, the desensitization uh, through violence and, and just, just the entire agenda. Really began to weigh on me that, that I was, as you said, as a grip, a very integral part of producing these films and making, especially as a dolly grip, uh, which I spent a great deal of time. And that is the grip that is specifically, uh, pushes the camera, works with the camera crew, uh, to move the camera, whether that's with a crane or a dolly or, or just any type of camera movement at all. And so you're actually, my hands are on the apparatus that is moving the camera. And so I just really began to get convicted about it. The Lord really began to speak to me. And in October of 2017 is was my last show. I worked on a show called Superstition, which aired on the Sci-Fi Channel, which was very, very dark, very, very centered around the occult. And I just, I reached a breaking point to where I could not, uh, I could not ignore the Lord's voice any longer any longer, and I basically finished out my commitment on that show and left the business, changed my phone number, and left town, came up to hang out with my brother and just recuperate because the schedule alone of being in the film industry, the schedule alone does you know five or six days a week. You know, 90 hours is, is not unheard of. I've worked 112 hours in a week. If, if your listeners can understand that, you know, I've worked 20, 22 hours in a day before. It's, it's just not that abnormal. Uh, most of the time it's around 12 to 14, sometimes 16, but the long hours, uh, lack of sleep, your ir- irregular eating patterns, all of it just was doing a number on me physically. And then I had the spiritual and mental battle going on to try and stay focused and produce content that i absolutely knew in my heart was against everything i knew about god and so i just decided to take a take a break a good long break a forever break uh, i don't ever plan to work on a film set again
1: well we have heard stories from so many people who have been in the the, the belly of the beast i guess you can call it and obviously the most familiar to me is is John's story And his interaction with the show While he was working there And some of the stories that I have heard You know, behind the scenes And it seems like if you have the spiritual discernment It is a very dark place And it's good to hear that you are, are out of it But you know, one of the things that's so fascinating In the culture and society we have today is We see this push with the Hollywood industry, the mainstream media, the political elite and establishment and business elite, they seem to all have the same agenda. They're all mentally on the same page. And this is what I refer to as, you know, this spiritual deception. This is a spiritual battle at, at the heart of the matter. And these people are all on the same page, deceived spiritually and pushing that agenda. And this is why they're all on the same page, on the same page mentally. It's, and it's like how they, it seems that they all get a piece of paper in the morning with the same talking points on it. But that is just the, the spiritual nature of this battle. So we're glad that you're out of Hollywood and we're glad that you're doing something that you absolutely love to do. And, uh, you know, congratulations for not only coming out, but being able to speak about it and maybe help, help others realize that it's not worth it. Uh, to live that life when the money's not worth it uh to live that life when you see the cost that it has not only in your own life but in society as well so
2: absolutely, bill uh, absolutely bill uh let's do this uh we just we have limited time this evening, and of course we're gonna we're gonna welcome you back but uh let's talk about your article let 's talk about your interaction with my my understanding is you interacted with Glenn Hobb. Uh, Colton's father, correct, and there's uh, there's evidentiary proof in your article, and again, that article is the Anatomy of a Lie. People can find it at HagmanReport.com. Um, long story short, for two weeks since the uh, since the Valentine's Day massacre, the horrible Parkland shooting, seventeen dead, myriad questions swirling around the mainstream media, the independent media. Like all of these mass casualty events, Bill, more questions than answers at this point. People's social media accounts being crushed, being shut down, deleted for using terms like crisis actor or for taking on who this David Hogg character is. But lost in the shuffle is Colton Hobb, one of the JROTC uh, members who was recently on with Tucker Carlson, and that's the featured image uh, for your article on the website, uh, Bill, why don't you pick it up from there? Let's talk about Colton Hobb. Let's talk about what his allegations against CNN were, how you got involved in the story, and then what you discovered.
3: Absolutely. Well, we all know the famous interview that he did on Fox that Tucker Carlson did with him and asked him you know, why he didn't show up at the town hall, and Colton described that that he was presented with questions that were scripted, and so... I want to define exactly what what that was exactly. Originally, Colton was asked to write a speech, and that turned into as the days got closer to the town hall, the producer at CNN, Carrie Stevenson, basically asked him to then go move away from the speech and submit a list of questions, and then from that point, uh. The questions then got drilled down into one question, and what CNN presented for him to ask was a combination of a statement he had made on Fox and Friends combined with a question that he had submitted. And that is what they sent him. The entire day of the twenty first, there were some emails back and forth between CNN, uh, the producer Carrie Stevenson, producer for special projects. And Glenn Hobb. And at the last minute, this was this one question that basically recapped Colton's statement about if Coach Feist had had his weapon, could he have done something to stop the shooter? And then a question that said, have we thought about having classes for teachers that are basically qualified to carry is the, is the gist of that question. Mr. Hobb objected to One line, three words that said that he submitted. The CNN producer in her email was insinuating that Colton had submitted this combined concoction of a statement and a question. And when Mr. Hobb, what he did, when they did not show up at the town hall, all the people on his own social media, on his Facebook, started asking him, hey, we thought, why is Colton not on the town hall? We were looking for you guys. And so basically, Mr. Hobb cut and pasted the emails from an email program into a Word document. And when he noticed those three words that said that he submitted, insinuating that Colton had concocted this question and a statement together, he omitted those three words. And he, he, he told me flat out on the phone. I spoke to him for about an hour before I wrote the article. And he told me flat out, he said, Bill, I wasn't trying to mislead anyone. I was actually trying to correct the record. And I wish I'd done it differently. But in the panic of just the, the media attention, there were, there were phone calls from, from all types of news, news departments. Uh, the, uh, newspapers were calling him. He wanted to get the information to his social media, and he he didn't know any better way other than to cut and paste into a Word document and then post that onto his Facebook so that his friends could see what was going on. And so the, the intent behind deleting those three words was not to mislead anyone or to doctor an email. It was to correct the record in his mind. And he told me that over and over and over. He said, Bill, I know I probably went about it the wrong way, but there was no intent. I mean it's obvious that CNN and I have all the emails uh in the document. Uh the the article itself has a link where you can go and see the entire email chain and you can absolutely see Colton's questions that he submitted and you can see what CNN submitted. So then following the next day when all of this came out and CNN basically said, "Oh, you've you've doctored these emails" and and then it's just the whole liar narrative starts starts running on social media, and then all these blogs, all these newspapers, Washington Post, all of these papers start printing. The AP, a guy named Bob Eller, called uh, Mr. Hobb for an interview over the phone, and the very first two questions he asked him were, are you a Republican or a Democrat, Mr. Hobb? And then he asked, do you own a gun, Mr. Hobb? So those two questions right off the bat really struck me. But as far as how I got involved, it, it all started on Twitter um, when I got out of the film industry, I basically kind of picked up uh, kind of a truth ministry, I like to think about it, because I try to have some devotions as well as just point out truth and what's going on and, and share that with my followers on Twitter. This this meme came across my Twitter feed that basically said Colton Hobb has had his Twitter account deleted or banned, suspended, and I started looking. I see David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez, these kids that are pushing the anti-gun, get the guns, never again agenda. They've got blue checks, which Twitter had said, we're never going to do blue checks again. I mean,
1: yeah, they're, it, verified. They,
3: they're verified. They're yeah. verified. And they've got millions of followers already, right? And so it just really stuck in my craw. And so I, I tweeted this out and I had about 7,000 followers at the time. I think I'm over 8,200 now. But I just tweeted out, I said, hey, this is, this is total crap. I said, can I get, I said, I've got 7,000 followers. Can I get some serious retweet on this meme? And it went like crazy. And within the first 24 hours, I was at like 125,000 organic impressions. And I think to this day, it's only been up about four or five days. I think we're well over 300,000 impressions. And so that kind of, drove my motivation to dig into this story. And so I found Glenn Hobbs' phone number online because they had published, I'm sorry, not his phone number, but his email address, his work email address. And that's the other thing is that he was very, very um, careful and concerned that he might lose his job over all this because of the work email uh, was used and he didn't want to draw any more attention to his employer and so I was trying to be very respectful of that, but I did, I just sent him an email and I said, Hey, I want to write an article. I showed him that there were many, many people that were interested in the story. And he called me back. I mean, he, he basically emailed me back and said, Hey, I'd love to do a phone call with you. And then we did a call on Saturday morning and I finished writing the article Saturday and got it up on the Hagman report. Thanks to John. And, uh, really, if people go and take a look at it, they will see that this man did not attempt to lie at all. It was, it was to correct because Kerry Stevenson is the one that said, we, I spoke to Colton on the phone and he needs to stick to this that he submitted. And, and what they wanted him to read, he did not submit. He only submitted a portion of that. The rest of it was something that CNN grabbed from another interview he did. And so, semantics or no semantics, Mister Hobb did not want anyone to think that his son had submitted this concoction of a question slash statement. That the question itself was the only thing that Colton had submitted. And so, needless to say, if he'd have just here's here's the here's the interesting part of this whole thing: whether or not he submitted the concocted question or not. He did submit something. So even if that was omitted, it's a moot point. N- neither side of this controversy, CNN nor Glenn Hobb, disagree that Colton submitted questions. So why would it be such a big deal to omit the words that he submitted? That's really what got my mind thinking. That's when I, when I got on the phone with Mr. Hobb and he explained the entire email chain to me then it made sense why he omitted those words. But the whole point of them being omitted in the first place seemed like a moot point to me. It wasn't like he omitted huge sections of the body of the email or added in some extra commentary somewhere, and that's how this story was spun. And, you know, he's had death threats, just absolutely vile stuff that's gone on, and it's a travesty that people would follow a... Carefully, carefully crafted narrative, not only that was presented at the town hall, when you have a sheriff that's blaming the NRA for his own department's, you know, absolutely malfeasance and cowardly actions of not going in and saving children, they're going to blame the NRA. And then the whole thing just gets out of control, and, and the Hobbs, bless their hearts, they're just pawns in this whole thing. When, you know, the actions of, you know, it's it's so interesting that David Hogg and Cameron Kasky are being touted as these survivors. The story of what Colton Hobb was doing in the midst of all this is absolutely unbelievable. And I shared some of this in a video that I made and put up on BitChute. But the kid armed himself with a two by four and gave, gave another kid a fire extinguisher, took Kevlar sheets that were hanging from the the ceiling, which they would shoot pellet guns into in the classroom, they would do target practice. He took these Kevlar sheets down off the off the ceiling and used them to cover kids. And you know, he was kind of like a little commander on the ground there. And then he's he's just vilified. So I, I feel like we've gotten a lot of good response to the article. I've gotten a lot of good response to the video. And um, anybody that can still read that and call that that kid or that gentleman a liar. They're just cognitively disconnected. That's all it is. They're just so far brainwashed. You, you,
1: there's just no hope for them. And, and it's so much worse than that, too, and, and you're exactly right, uh, what they did to this kid. See, it's so interesting to see you have the, the Gonzalez and uh, who I call attention hog, David hog, who have been on every single you know late-night show, daily show, from Ellen to Oprah to all the news media out there, You know, parroting his talking points on gun control and his anti-Trump agenda. And then you have people being banned and censored on YouTube for calling or questioning this kid's motivation. And then when you have a real hero, and then the the media attacks the people who call out these kids who are talking about, you know, the anti-Trump stuff, anti-gun stuff. Then you have a kid who's telling the truth. And as you pointed out, obviously, he did not try to deceive anybody. He did tell the truth the first time. CNN in an attempt to, uh, what, what they try to do is always clear their name of any wrongdoing. For whatever reason, when, when they are called fake news or called liars, that's like the worst thing you can ever say to CNN. And, and they will do and say every and anything to try to, to clear that up or to spin it to make it look like they're the good guys. But then, you know, you have CNN calling this kid a liar. See, it's okay, uh, if they are calling a kid a, a shooting a hero of the shooting a liar but if you call you know one of the other survivors that are up there parroting the gun control talking points you call them a liar then you're getting banned you're hateful on and on and on but the story you wrote uh, and the detail you you wrote in there it, it lays it out perfectly and this is a perfect snapshot into what the media does on a daily basis to the truth to the truth tellers to the people who are speaking outside of the narrative that they are trying to push and it is just so alarming in the society we live in today that these people from Hollywood from the media from the political establishment are able to get away with this and you know what's going to happen next they're 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 you know thankfully this gun control debate is kind of dying out in the news but this is far from over and these kids this is a new thing this is a new phenomenon is having these kids being paraded around who are now political activists it being thrust into the mainstream we know this david Hogg is the future anderson cooper and that's what he was you know jockeying for in his uh, you know 15 minutes of fame but it's so unfortunate fortunate that a real hero has to be disparaged by cnn because cnn in their own bias and deception uh you know they they got caught so I, I don't know what else to say on the subject, Bill. Joe, it's such if, a. It's so if I could up. just
3: inter, if I could just interject this uh, that I felt was very, very important is after the the liar narrative went crazy and you have all these uh, articles being written. Uh, Jeff Bezos on Washington Post writes an article, you know, basically flat out calling this guy a liar. Not one single. Reporter, And this is what disappoints me about Fox News is they originally kind of broke the story. And then when CNN comes out and produces the emails and say, oh, they're doctored, Fox, nobody from Fox called Mr. Hobb back to get his side of the story. Mr. Hobb told me, he said, Bill, you are
1: the only person that has called me since this broke. And, and I'm Tucker like Carlson, I think he did a piece on Tucker Carlson, but not after CNN came back out and tried to and, and called him a liar again. Bill, I don't mean to cut you off, but we are absolutely out of time. Bill Chapman, well, uh, you can find him at on his social media at B 151 and his article, it's up on Hagman Report. The anatomy of a lie. Folks, make sure you make sure you check that out. It is such a well written piece that documents exactly what happened uh here with this CNN lie and, and attempted slander of this young hero. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was an honor and a pleasure. Well, we'll do it again. Keep up the
2: good work, Bill. Keep writing, keep sending it to us. We love you, man.
1: We'll I will. be right back with Daniel Horowitz after this and hey, welcome back to hour two on this tuesday edition of the hangman report we have a great guest lined up for you returning guest daniel horowitz of conservative review we're going to talk about his piece trump is obligated to follow immigration law not the ruling of district the judges if you go to hagman report there's a piece up uh there that we put up today and if you've noticed hagman report has a new design and i'm not sure how much we talked about this but we used to have all the articles uh, just on the on the main uh section there but if you look under the the scrolling i don't even know what you call it this, the scrolling image thing there are two sections one it says exclusive reports and The other one says, In Other News. Now, if you click on In Other News, you will get the curated news that I put up from the day. Then, under the exclusive reports, you will get the original pieces, like the one from Bill Chapman, like uh, the one I wrote today on Internet Censorship, and on and on. And if you look in Other News, again, there's a piece up there. Federal judge in Maryland rules Trump has the right to end DACA in win for the administration. A federal judge in Maryland has sided with the Trump administration over a lawsuit challenging the Justice Department's ability to rescind the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival program. Judge Roger Titus, a Bush appointee, ruled late Monday President Trump acted within his authority in his plan to rescind an executive order from former President Obama announced in 2012 as a way to protect illegal immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as minors. Trump ended the order over a period of six months until Congress could legislatively solve the problem. Anyways, you can read more there if you want to continue on that story. But we have with us Daniel Horowitz, and he has a piece again. Trump is obligated to follow immigration law, not district judges. And in this piece, he talks about the law, activist judges, and the immigration debate. Daniel, welcome back to the show.
0: Great to be back with you.
1: Well, it's great to have you, and... Uh, you know, so much has happened since the last time you were on. This immigration debate continues, even though we've seen a number of other things uh, in the news dominate the news headlines, such as this Parkland, Florida, school shooting, leaving 17 dead, and all the crazy news that has come out of there. Um, but a, a win today, I guess, in the uh, federal court in Maryland for Trump's the Trump administration on DACA if you can, give us a, a brief rundown of where this stands right now. What is going on with DACA? Is it ending? Can it be ended? Or what do you think is going to happen?
0: Sure. Well, well, first off, we have to mention the fact that when it comes to the federal judiciary, it's a one-way street and a dead end for conservatives. Uh, because the left has rigged a system in the legal profession, which I go through in this piece. Basically, heads I win, tails I win. So it wasn't much of a win, and here's why. Um, The left has set up a system where they could put any political issue in court. Kind of like, you know, you have civil litigation, criminal litigation. You have political litigation that instead of working out in the political branches of government and your state legislature on a state issue and Congress on a federal issue, it's the federal courts get to decide everything. And not just the Supreme Court, but even any one of the 94 federal district courts in this country could simply declare an edict and place a nationwide injunction on national policy outside of the – Individual plaintiff case or controversy, and even outside of the geographical jurisdiction of that court, and have that be unrivaled as the unquestioned law of the land. That is the system that they imbued in our body politic that unfortunately the other two branches have accepted. So we now have a, um, you know, just to speak a little broadly here, we have a growing crisis where the courts have become so lawless that they're now mandating that Trump continue. Obama's discretionary policies that in themselves were mainly either discretionary or downright against law. We see that with the courts mandating he continue the transgenderism in the military and paying for so-called sex change operations. We see it with them mandating that he continue a lot of Obama's energy and environmental regulations that went well beyond the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. We see this with the courts mandating that he continue the contraception mandate and all these um, you know, grant programs for family planning and uh, Planned Parenthood type of organizations. And most prominently, we see this on immigration. I wrote a book on this, the intersection between the courts and immigration, called Stolen Sovereignty, that now we cannot determine our future. Instead, the courts are quote, making denizens of aliens. That is the terminology Alexander Hamilton used in Federalist 69 to describe the powers of a king over a president, meaning a president is not able to unilaterally take aliens and make them denizens without an act of Congress. Here, we have President Obama unilaterally declaring denizens of aliens, meaning not just saying he's not going to deport them. Let's remember, he, he's saying that we're going to issue them affirmative benefits, work permits, social security cards, and then by extension, refundable tax credits, especially this time of year um, when people are filing their, their taxes. And guess what happens? Now we have unelected judges codifying an, a lawless act of a president to steal the national sovereignty. There, There is literally nothing more insane than what the courts are doing on immigration. So now you're going to ask me, well, didn't we finally win a case in the District Court of Maryland? Here's where it becomes rigged. The left has created a system where they say, well, all that judge did was throw out that individual lawsuit. But the nationwide injunction placed on the policy by the San Francisco and New York judges, that still applies. Heads I win, tails I win. And and that's what I deconstruct in this piece. So, you know, Trump, if he actually had guts, he would now use this opinion and say, I'm not continuing this, I'm going to follow immigration law, but unfortunately it looks like the White House is still abiding by the other district judge rulings.
1: So how does this, I mean, how does this end? Does this get, does some, does this have to go to the Supreme Court does Congress have to issue, uh, create a law that the president signs into effect? I thought the laws are already on the books. I mean, how does, how does this get resolved?
0: Let me ask you, how does a 100-pound woman beat up a 300-pound champion boxer? Our founders <laughs> never envisioned that the other two branches would just sit there and allow it. Di- just remember here, a Supreme Court is created by the Constitution although its its jurisdiction, subject matter jurisdiction, and its makeup is completely uh, pursuant to congressional statute. But the lower courts, their entire existence is not created by the Constitution, but by Congress. They are not co-equal, certainly not su- superior to the other two branches. Um, you know, it, it's time to ignore them. And I, I want to make something very clear here, and I write this in the piece. When I talk about ignoring it, and, and now it's not even ignoring it because the courts are split, um... When I talk about ignoring it, people bring up Andrew Jackson. Oh well, you know you're going to be like Andrew Jackson that that uh, wound up um, you know removing the, the turkey Indians and you know against the court order. Uh, the, let's understand the difference between the judicial power and the legislative power. A court doesn't shape public policy. A court doesn't ratify a law. A court doesn't uphold a law, and a court doesn't strike down a law even according to those who believe in what's called judicial review. What a court can do is if you have a legitimate plaintiff, not an illegal alien who does should never have standing, and for 200 years the court said they don't have standing to sue for benefits, but a legitimate plaintiff that says, look, the federal government is placing a positive action on my negative right, on my right to exist. They're throwing me in jail. They're going to execute me, um, and they're wrong. I could petition a court to grant me relief, and then they take a look at the law. Well, what does the law say? Well, does the law say that you're liable to this? Okay, but then the next question is, is the law constitutional? So the court could place a negative on the positive action of the executive branch taken against the negative unalienable right of an individual plaintiff. What a court cannot do is place a positive On an executive's negative in broad public policy dealing with immigration, meaning telling the the executive branch, you must cough up a visa, you must cough up a work permit, a social security card. That's an executive action. That's a violation of separation of powers. The same way the executive and legislative branches cannot exercise judicial power and adjudicate an individual case or controversy, they cannot ex- ex- execute executive branch. Hey, you, you buddy, uh, Judge Aslop there in San Francisco, you go issue a visa. You you go uh, uh, man the county... uh Board of Elections and have 30 days of early voting. You know, these are some other cases. They're mandating early voting, mandating gay marriage licenses. Those are executive powers. So, you know, the same way Marbury versus Madison said that if a judge swears an oath to uphold the Constitution, they have to grant relief to a plaintiff when the law is repugnant to the Constitution. So how much more so the executive branch has a right and indeed an obligation to when the courts are being lawless and demanding that they use their executive power in contravention to not just any statute, but the most foundational sovereignty statutes, the president has an obligation not to issue those work permits.
1: Wow. So much there. So much there to unpack. Our guest, again, is Daniel Horowitz. Your book, Stolen Sovereignty, it deals with, with this issue uh, at length and... You know, my mind's going 100 miles a minute here. What's going to happen not only with the Donald Trump administration, but also with, you know, the next administration and those after that? This seems like an unresolvable issue. And this judicial activism is is, is so troublesome uh, to see that judges are able to basically thwart presidential actions and keep instilled illegal presidential action. Uh, actions executive orders such as we saw with obama and we've never seen a presidency that has been so hindered whether it is with immigration whether it is with uh, as you said the the transgender serving in the military whether it is on the the travel ban uh, it, it's unbelievable to see how many uh, times these judges are interjecting themselves into uh, executive department areas and making rulings that are contradictory to the, to the constitution. But to the immigration battle, I just wanted to do this if we can real quick, Daniel. I want to talk about something that the media is so good at doing with the deception and the argument over, uh, you know, DACA and illegal immigration. I've been watching a lot of CNN, unfortunately, and watching some of these panel debates on, you know, the, the, uh, on immigration and on DACA. They never make the distinction of Legal versus illegal immigration. I've never heard one conservative, one Republican, one person who says we need to end legal immigration. But they try to lump in, you know, the blanket amnesty or people who are against blanket amnesty as people who are against legal immigration. When they talk about, oh, this is You know, you you opposing this is opposing a founding principle of this country for over 200 and some years, and you're opposing the Constitution. They never make the distinction in the terminology of the legal versus illegal immigration. What is it going to... The the left obviously wants blanket amnesty, and the right wants our immigration policies to be enforced and and better border security. Do you think we're ever going to see... A bipartisan or a deal come from Congress, go to the Senate, and be signed by the President?
0: Um, well, I, I think if we do see a deal, it will be one signed by the left because um, the Republicans agree foundationally or at least the leadership and many of the members agree with the Democrats, and the Democrats don't agree with the so-called supposed Republican proposals. So, I mean, that's, that's the problem. The reason why we have this issue unresolved is because we have a fake Republican party that doesn't pursue the Democrats when they're down that doesn't assert these arguments that doesn't stand up for American sovereignty you know the, the polling shows very clear the American people's their philosophy on immigration is very simple immigration is an elective policy it's kind of like you know the draft pick you get to choose your new members of the team you got to deal with the ones you already have there although I guess you could let them go but you know you got to deal with what you have but you could you know see who's going to be your, your next, next the draft pick um, the idea is that supply and demand. Everyone wants to come to America. Um, simple supply and demand here. It has been, and I, in addition to talking about the courts, I discuss our philosophy, history, law, history, laws, and traditions on immigration in in my book, Stolen Sovereignty, especially the second half of the book. And one of the things that was clear from our founding until fairly recently, with the rise of the alt left. And that is that immigration should only, only, only benefit those already here. It should only be a net positive. There's a lot of wonderful people in this world. A lot of people want to come. There's a lot of people that aren't so wonderful. And there's a lot of people that maybe are kind of nice people, but they're just impoverished. They're going to be public charged. They're going to be on welfare. And look, you know, we have enough of our own. The idea is that if you elect to bring in new people, it was common sense. Everyone agreed, you know, you'd only bring in people that weren't a public charge. And that was codified in our immigration laws since the 1880s. And it was codified really in, um you know, when states were taking care of immigration earlier than that and even colonies during the colonial time. They didn't want a public charge. It was just, you know, again, it's nothing... It's not a matter of the fact that immigrants on welfare are any worse than natives on welfare. It's just you have the option to choose the new people coming in. So as it speaks to immigration to say I'm pro-immigration, I'm anti-immigration, it's like saying I'm pro-fat and calories or anti-fat and calories. Well, what type, how much, over what period of time? I mean, you know, the, the facts matter. And then certainly to cover your main point here, legal and illegal is not just a technical distinction. There's a very important philosophy behind that. And that's sovereignty. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. we only want to bring... we We, as an independent civil society, an independent nation-state, we get to determine who comes in here. The key word in immigration and who gets to join our society is the word consent. It has to be consensual. It's the ultimate private property issue i can 't unilaterally assert jurisdiction on your private property, and that 's the big difference here it 's not just well, you we let in, you we stuck in, but come on, you know you get to stay it 's that wait a minute, you can 't unilaterally assert jurisdiction, and this is the big problem everyone 's talking about, oh, the children of no fault of their own you 're right it 's of no fault of their own, but it 's also of no fault of the American people. Suffering from the crime and the cultural problems in their schools, and and let's face it, while not all young illegal aliens are criminals, almost all the criminals are the so-called Dreamer population. They ain't the 70-year-olds. You know, I I love when you know even Trump when he talks about this issue. It makes it seem like like there's illegal immigrants, and then there's the DACA population, like the greater. I, I mean. Anyone will tell you the drug runners, the criminals, they're mainly the young males between 18 and 30, and that's true of any demographic. It's the young males that are always the troublemakers, white, black, or Hispanic. Um, So, you know, that is the major problem. It's of no fault of our own. It's the fault of their parents and the fault of their countries of origin, and American sovereignty comes first. The needs of our people come first. If you're an elected official, and you want and you feel so bad, you have the right to open up a ministry in Latin America, Central America, and, and deal with that. But as an elected official, you're like a father figure of a home, that your responsibility is to care for your family. You don't say, hey, I'm going to go downtown. You know, I live in Baltimore. Hey, I'm going to go to downtown Baltimore. I feel bad for some of these people rioting there. I'll bring some people home um, and, uh, you know, screw my kids. No, I mean – you know charity starts in the home and the same thing here when you are a an elected official the social compact finds you to represent your people first
2: very well stated and our guest this hour is daniel horowitz who writes for conservative review and his book stolen sovereignty on the bookshelf here at the hagman studio it is, it's mission critical reading to understand the topic that we've been parsing through here for the last several minutes with Daniel. Daniel John Robertson sitting in for, uh, for Doug Hagman this evening. I want to switch gears, uh, stay within this topic, but switch gears a little bit because we're talking about these judges and certainly some of them are better than others, but many, uh, seem to go rogue as, as you're implying. And, uh, so I have a two part question for you. The first part is, how do these judges justify their well, let's be kind and call it very liquid or very flexible position on sanctuary cities because the federal funding keeps flowing. And then let's put a finer point on that with uh, what's uh, up uh, at sfgate, sfgate.com here uh, this afternoon by Bob Uh, Igeko, 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 uh posted 4:11 p.m. Sessions to make major sanctuary jurisdiction announcement during Sacramento visit. So two questions for you, Daniel. First off, how do these judges live with themselves? They seem to be duplicitous at best. The funds keep flowing. These sanctuary cities are, by the Constitution, illegal. And part two, what do you think uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is up to in Sacramento? And, and for that matter, I'm glad that we know where he is. <laughs> but Daniel, I'll hand it back to you.
0: Oh, yeah, he's kind of, look, at least he's working on something good. Um Let me make your question stronger before answering it. The very same judges that suddenly discover federalism and states' rights, suddenly when it comes to something that is manifestly a federal power, manifestly a federal power, which is immigration, it's the sovereignty of the entire union, like, oh, no, the states, you can't, you can't. Um, how states, and, and by the way, isn't it interesting how states are uh, suddenly entitled to federal grant programs? You know, they're, they're entitled to federal money. You know, putting aside Sanctuary City issues... Yeah, we'll, we'll
2: have to bring you back for that topic.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, who says they're entitled? Because that's what they're saying with the Sanctuary Cities, that, you know, Jeff Sessions can't cut off the law enforcement grant money um, because that's that's coercing them. But that's only if you take money that belongs to them. They're not entitled to that, But Anyway, these same judges are crushing the states when it comes to state powers. They're overturning every single redistricting map, not just federal elections but state legislative maps, mandating that you have to um, accept anyone to vote without checking for citizenship, without photo ID. Um, they're mandating in some places 15, 20, 30 days of early voting. I mean, states can't do anything. States can't define marriage anymore. They can't put the most reasonable... Um, healthcare-related regulations on abortion clinics, all the Kermit Gosnell laws that they've been passing have been struck down by these courts. States can't do anything. Suddenly, when it comes to the one thing, you know, election law, Article One, Section 4 of the Constitution gives states the full power over the time, methods, and procedures of elections, and every one of those things are being vitiated by the courts. But when it comes to national sovereignty, suddenly the courts are telling us that no 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 um you know you cannot you cannot do this how do they justify it? um with the left the ends justify the means so notice everything the left um posits as a political argument within a couple of years it becomes a legal argument i believe this should be this way a couple of years later they say it must be that way it's illegal it's unlawful it's immoral and they they're very loose on the way they use illegal and immoral, and they speak to the morality of their immorality. So what you see this is, that, for example, Judge Nicholas Garofas of the Eastern District of New York. He was the one of the ones who mandated that DACA must go on. He literally said during oral arguments and in his written opinion that DOJ lawyers can't come in here and express heartless opinions. We're not going to have heartless things here, and, and it, these are literally political arguments. You could agree or disagree, but what does the law say? But they don't care because the legal profession, um, the the litigants, the American Bar Association—they've created a culture where it's okay to do that in court. You could um, misconstrue and bastardize political arguments as legal arguments. There used to be a time when there was intellectual honesty, where we, where people were able to say, "Look." I wish Congress would do this. I believe this is a good policy, but I understand that, you know, it, it's discretionary. You could do it. You could not do it. It's not mandated by the Constitution. You know, I might say, I, I really want a lot of immigration. I want amnesty for illegal immigrants. I want gay marriage. I want abortion on demand. But then it's quite another thing to say the Constitution demands it. And that's what they've been allowed to do, but I'll tell you this much, the way they've been able to get away with it is because even the legal right in America, the legal conservatives, so to speak, have agreed to this premise that the courts are supreme over the other two branches, that they serve as an unassailable, final, exclusive, sole word in every public policy issue, and you can't push back against them. So, look, if you tell an unelected judge that doesn't have to stand for election, has a lifetime appointment, hey, anything you ever wanted to accomplish as a legislator and weren't able to do, now you could do it on the bench with the flick of a wrist and no one's going to question you and you won't get kicked out. Sure, they're going to go and do it.
1: Yeah. It's unbelievable the lawlessness that we see. Uh, Daniel, I want to ask you this. The mayor of Oakland was in the news recently for issuing warnings of upcoming ICE raids to businesses in California. Many people have been asking, should these people these politicians who are doing this be held criminally responsible. What's your opinion on this? Do you, Can these uh, mayors and, and people who hinder federal investigations, can they be held criminally accountable?
0: A- absolutely. Um, there's a bill in the House from Cotter Akita from Indiana to actually mandate a year jail time. Um, but in terms of the basis of the law, I don't have in front of me. I've written on this before the exact statute, but it's very clear language that anyone who harbors um, an illegal immigrant is um, it, it commits a felony. It's 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 actually a felony. Um, now, obviously, you know if they just kind of like you know vaguely declare sanctuary policies, whatever that means, um, you know I, I believe we could f- punish them with funding. You can't arrest them, but in, in this case where they are directly obstructing justice, obstructing investigation, thwarting federal law enforcement, they could absolutely and must be thrown in jail. And and again, I am a very big states' rights guy, but we don't believe in states' rights per se. We believe in a constitutional republic. And that means, generally speaking, many more things than are under current practice need to be devolved to the states. But there's a couple of things the federal government has to do very well. And immigration is one of them. The founders were very clear. Um, James Madison writing in a 1782 letter to Edmund Randolph when they were concocting a constitutional scheme to, you know, move away from the Articles of Confederation. One of the things he pointed out was that a uniform ro- rule of naturalization for this future federal government would cure the existing problem under the Confederation of, quote, the intrusion of obnoxious aliens through other states, and their concern was that um, certain descriptions of he writes this in Federalist Forty Two, certain descriptions of aliens who had rendered themselves obnoxious can force themselves on several states that had acquired the character of citizens under the laws of another state. And you know, I have quotes from Roger Sherman from many of them. Um, Justice Scalia has actually quoted this before. Um, in in some recent opinions before he passed away. And the point is, the founders were concerned about a state like California, that in an effort, people forget sanctuary cities. It's not just the lawlessness. It's not just that the crime and the fiscal burden. They're using lawlessness to juice up their representation in Congress. A lot of people don't talk about this. One of the most egregious elements of stolen sovereignty of the American citizenry Disenfranchising the U.S. citizen is that illegal aliens are counted in the census. So the more they serve as a magnet for, as a sanctuary, the more that incentivizes them because California gets five extra seats, five extra seats in the house and, and therefore five extra electoral votes because of illegal immigration. Um, they get extra grant funding for all these you know, community block grant programs, many different, you know, just federal programs across HUD and commerce and education, you name it, that are doled out based on population. Um, th- this is extremely unfair, and the founders didn't want that. That is not limited government. That hurts the other states. And, you know, I'll also point out another case. Um, you, know, you talk about Oakland. What stays, what happens in California doesn't necessarily stay in California. Uh, recently, and, and, and this is a disgrace that, that there hasn't been a national, um, outcry like there is over Parkland because we don't have a party and a movement making an outcry over it. Um, but many people have been killed by illegal alien drunk drivers. A lot of very sad incidents. There was a case in Winston-Salem with a three-year-old kid, um, en route to a hospital in an ambulance on the way to a trauma center getting killed by an illegal alien drunk driver that, you know, crashed into it. Um, in Indianapolis, Colt's linebacker, Edwin Jackson, and his uh, Uber driver were killed by a, an illegal alien DUI um, guy who, I forgot his name, he was released, and it came back a number of times, and he was arrested recently and released by Los Angeles County as a sanctuary city. So he wasn't even from or residing in Indiana. So that is why, you know, I, I have some libertarian friends that are uh, all all into, you know, the states' rights and everything when it comes to immigration. No, 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 no. That like the military, like national security, that affects the entire federal union. It affects the representation of of our Congress. That is something that the federal government absolutely has the right to enforce and do what is necessary and proper to affect that outcome
2: Daniel, let me ask you this uh, to sort of pull the pull the camera back a little bit and look at this and just by broader definition i'm curious what your response to this will be uh, myself living for many many years in Los Angeles a very short time in Oakland and then a couple of years in san francisco i've I've lived in the, at the crossroads of multiculturalism. Uh, some of it good, some of it not so good. And I've often wondered, I've wondered this for two decades, Daniel, it's obvious to see what motivates the left in this country to essentially want to throw open the floodgates. Hey, you know, it, it's, an, it's an all-skate, everybody in. Doesn't matter where you come from, vetting, eh, We don't need it. Chain migration, sure, if your great-granddaddy's neighbor's friend who mowed the lawn came in, you come right on in, too. Um... And the visa lottery, we don't even need to go there. So it's easy to see that the DNC is blatantly, shamelessly packing the books vis-a-vis the voter rolls. But it's a little more confusing to me, Daniel, to understand why the Republican Party in this country allows it. Uh, Of course, in 1986, we'd be remiss not to remember that it was under president ronald reagan that we did the last amnesty which was supposed to be the last one ever and fix the problem and yet here we are 30 years later right back where we started daniel your thoughts on why the republicans don't find their teeth on this issue
0: wow um you're asking me to explain stupid well (laughs) first you have to understand what a republican is i mean come on john what is a republican a Republican is someone who's not talented enough to get elected in a Democrat primary. I mean, that's, that's, that's essentially your answer there. Um. No,
2: okay, okay, let me, let me throw this out quickly. Let me throw this out quickly. I've always, this is my opinion, I'm opining that at the end of the day, big business adores a cheap foundational labor pool. I'll hand it back to you.
0: I, no, so that's definitely a component of it, but I don't even, I think it's actually overblown that, I mean, Republicans are beholden to K Street, that is true, but there, there's a couple things here, and first off, I just want to plug to your audience here, um, I have an article, you can Google my name, Daniel Horowitz, how chain migration will create a permanent Democrat majority, so I actually go through all these numbers, as you're citing, from California, um, it, it's stuff, some of it's from my book, some of it's even added, and it is really, you know, it's stuff you're not going to read elsewhere with immigration trends and naturalization and voting patterns and you know it is really a kill shot on this country and it's pretty much we're we're pretty much already there um it's it's, it's starting to happen in states like North Carolina and Georgia let alone Florida and Texas um and you know I, I don't think immigration is different than what we're seeing on guns or seeing on crime or seeing on so-called social issues republicans have a crisis of values a crisis of intellect a crisis of imagination, a crisis of articulation. They, they have no ability to drive a narrative and an agenda. They operate solely within the paradigm, premises, assumption, narrative, parlance of the Democrats. Even when they disagree, it's always responding to them. So I think that's part of the problem. They really don't, they haven't studied immigration history well. They don't have their own view, other than they kind of know the Democrats are a little bit too wacky on it, so they'll just kind of move one tranche over to the right, um, even though the Democrats used to be to the right of where Republicans are today on the issue, and they've moved, you know, you listen to Harry Reid and Bill Clinton from the 90s, and that's very evident, um, and I think it's also, it's just that Republicans, uh, you know, basically Democrats learned how to pick the Republicans' lock, and they just shout racism or identity politics in a crowded theater, and they just clamor, and, and there's pandemonium. They can't control themselves, and you know, they know how to get to them and they just say, do you not like immigrants? Like, no, 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 I love them. Oh, no, you know, and, and that's the thing. <laughs> you know, it's like the barking dog. And, you know, um, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I was very scared of dogs and I always used to run. Um, and someone finally told me, like, you know, that, that's, that's the exact wrong thing to do. You hold your ground. If you run, they're going to chase you. I mean, and I think that's what they don't understand. You can never out left them on immigration. You can never give them enough. Because the bottom line is, immigration is a golden goose for them. You just literally look at California. I just want to give you, um, you know, one statistic here uh, about Orange County, Orange Ca- County, California, and I'm sure you're very familiar with it. Um, was once the breadbasket of GOP dominance in California. That was Reagan country. That's how Reagan won the state, you know, landslides as late as 1988. George H.W. Bush won more than twice as many votes in Orange County as Democrat Michael Dukakis. As late as 2004, when the broader state was already long gone, no way we could compete there in 2004, it certainly wasn't competitive, George W. Bush still won it by 20 points. Republicans narrowly car- carried it in 08 and 2012 until they downright lost it by 8 points in 2016 guess what happened in Orange County? In 1980, 12.7% of the county was foreign-born. In 2016, it's estimated that 30% of the county was foreign-born, and 45.6% of residents, according to the census, speak a foreign language at home. Now, that's just a measure of how it's no longer a melting pot. We're getting back to our original discussion about vague immigration. You know, Thomas Sowell used to make fun out of, um, the elites when they talk about, he called it, um, abstract immigration. I love immigration. Well, you know, what type, how much, over what time, the details matter. And that's the thing. Of course, a certain amount of immigration is very good, but there's a certain point where it's just not America anymore. And, and that's the thing. You, you cannot have that degree of immigration that quick and expect people to recognize constitutional republic values. They're just not, and they're just not going to vote for it. And, you know, Democrats recognize that and they're doing this to other states. You know, Texas is, has become surprisingly competitive this cycle. Um, Trump did not win it by as much as, uh, as Romney won it, Trump won it by nine points, Romney I believe won it by about 14 Uh, you know things are really changing and you know yes we need to reach out to all groups but at some point when you have a salad bowl immigration rather than melting pot immigration which was our tradition you can't win anymore
1: and then you talk about the uh, you know, immig- immigrants from 50 years ago to those today where 50 years ago you were getting involved in the workforce you were assimilating you were joining the military today you are becoming part of a dependent culture where you're being given handouts and, and you know money for food stamps and housing and it brings up a whole host of other issues and Daniel you said you said it best when it doesn't matter the littlest or, or the biggest amount of leeway you give the left they're always going to want to take more it was not even enough that Trump offered to double the number of people who would get citizenship citizenship through daca or a pathway to citizenship to what 1.8 million when the original number was 700,000 and he just wanted to end chain migration or the uh, except for extended family members immediate family members and they would not take it and we saw under the amnesty that Ronald Reagan issued you had illegal immigrants coming here after they if issued that amnesty, suing the government because they weren't here when that amnesty was issued. They will never give up. They will never back down. That's why it's so important that the president and uh, the, the federal government unified, uh, you know, enforce these laws, especially when we're dealing with illegal immigration. If the left had their own way, we would not have any borders left. And, and is that what they're really going for? I mean, if, if the left had total control, yeah. what, would, what would this country look like if the yes, left had yes. what they wanted?
0: And, and let's just tie everything together, immigration and the courts. The courts are essentially doing the Roe v. Wade and Obergerfell equivalent to immigration now. They're basically saying deportations are immoral. Um, that Listen, and you laugh, but that, that's what they're basically saying. I mean, unless the guy, like, murdered three people or something, but they're basically saying that, and that was a universal value. I mean, in the 1995 State of the Union address, Bill Clinton bragged about, you know, ramping up deportations, and everyone understood a sovereign nation. They want to erase the borders. They do not believe that we are a sovereign nation. This is very concerning, you know, um... If you remember the Jordan Commission, Barbara Jordan, a very progressive Democrat, um, from, from the 80s and 90s, and, um, she advocated everything we're saying tonight on, on immigration. You know, she believed in big government, somewhat socialism domestically, but she understood that you can't have it for the rest of the world. But with the rise of this new alt left, that just cultural Marxism, it just, there, there is, there are no boundaries, literally. I mean, it's kind of, um, you know, a good metaphor in itself, very symbolic, emblematic of their worldview on many other issues. They're just throwing out, deracinating every tradition of this country, um, you know, embodied through just going after the Pledge of Allegiance and a national anthem oh, and yeah. things like that. And, and, and that, that's what we're dealing with. You cannot negotiate with these people in good faith. Uh, all we're doing is giving in and, and I think the only way to do this is to punch them in the face and actually have a strong agenda. The problem is we have a unibrow in Washington. There's essentially, they, you know, there's a lot of fighting and insults thrown back and forth. But if you look at what I call the DPOs, the discernible policy outcomes, they're pretty close together on the most important issues.
1: You don't see the globalist banging on, on the doors of Mexico saying, open your borders and... You know, taking, you know, X amount of white people. You don't see this anywhere else. It only seems to be in Western countries, especially Europe and the United States, where they are, you know, forcing, trying to force, especially in Europe, issuing quotas to force immigrants into these Western countries. And now we're finally seeing some pushback in Europe with a number of citizens in Germany and, and these other nations saying, enough is enough. Angela Merkel had to admit there were such things as no-go zones in Germany uh, just this week or last week. And it seems like the tide is turning when it comes to this unchecked immigration and and refugees uh, from the Middle East being brought in. Do you think we're going to see a reversal in Europe as to what we have seen over the last few years where this huge influx of refugees has risen the level of violent sexual assaults and other crimes? Do you think the people are finally going to start to push back and elect leaders who will reverse these policies like we're kind of seeing with France right now?
0: No. <laughs> um, okay. Europe, Europe has collectively had a sex change operation. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's just been... It, no, I mean, and, and, and they stand as a warning sign. We're half a generation behind. And, and if we don't you know, change things now, we're going to be like them. Um, there might be a vocal minority, but they are a minority. Show me one single country there has been a lot of hype, a lot of hope of, uh, conservative governments taking over. It really has not happened. If you look across the map in all these countries, um, they're not shutting down the policies. They're not changing in Germany. Merkel is still there after, what, 15 years? How long has she been there? Um, you know, th- there's no signs of, and, and again, they're just, their, their entire culture has been systematically rotted out. I think this gets the root of, it's a very secular society. And, um, Islam has really filled that vacuum and you need something potent to combat, um, you know, their culture with and you just don't have it. Uh, you know, Sweden, there's a lot of articles out recently. Sweden is so bad that talk about tolerating the intolerant under the guise of tolerance where, you know, this pseudo tolerance comes full circle. Jews in the country are now sandwiched in between Um, cultural Marxism where the secularists don't allow them to practice. But then you think, all right, well, they're so tolerant and open-minded. Um, or, or, or I'm sorry, they're so concerned about religion that they're going to clamp down on Islam. But no, they bring in the Muslims and the Muslims are attacking the Jews left and right there. So now, you know, a lot of Jews are emigrating from Sweden, from France. Um, you know, it's funny. They talk a lot about immigration. What you don't hear about in the media is the emigration. Thanks. To those so-called compassionate policies, and I think that is what's so important to learn here in America. Um, don't sit and lecture me about universal values and what a good person you are about being tolerant. Because no, you are not a good person. You're a bad person if you're going to bring people in this country that make it unsafe uh, for 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 people in our country. To, to live safe lives. And, and by the way, and, and again, a lot of people aren't going to talk about this, but in America as well, we're headed down that path. Um, pretty much it's become universal that almost every major Jewish institution, whether it's a school, whether it's a synagogue, has to spend a tremendous amount of money on security now. Now, why are they spending money on security? Is it domestic crime? Well, maybe a little bit. Um, is it that Afghanistan is going to send an ICBM or a military unit? No, they don't have one. It's the immigration we let in, electively, violating that social compact. And uh, where's the tolerance in that?
1: Yeah, the people who claim uh, tolerance are the most intolerant people in the world, and we see that they are, uh, you know, they, they decry everybody be tolerant at the same time, They're intolerant of anybody with an opposing viewpoint. And one of the great examples of that was on The View just a few weeks ago, where Meghan McCain was making that point about tolerance and how uh, these people are tolerant unless you're a Christian, unless you are a Donald Trump supporter. And Whoopi Goldberg cut her off at the behest of the producers in her earpiece, saying, Don't let her finish that because heaven forbid. You know, common sense and logic are interjected into these conversations. Daniel, we only got about 10 minutes left of the interview. I kind of want to switch gears, if we can, uh, from immigration to a number of other things, uh, to, to get into. One, just your thoughts. What are your thoughts on, for the last two and a half weeks, three weeks now, since this Parkland shooting, we have seen, you know, the, the constant calls for gun control, the debate over what is an assault weapon, can we, uh, expand background checks. Can mental health uh, be looked at more? We saw all the failures of law enforcement, both at the federal and local level. We know about the promise program at, in the Broward County Sheriff's Department, where they basically uh, looked the other way while felonies were being committed in order to get federal funding and to pad their numbers. Where does the blame of this shooting lay aside from the shooter? Should Sheriff Israel resign or be fired?
0: Well, obviously, look, he's he's a clown show and his deputy is ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, there's a lot of problems going on there, but I don't want to limit this to one county and one sheriff because this is a much more systemic problem. Look, I refused to do radio interviews for 72 hours afterwards because I honestly felt, you know, before the details came out that, you know, it was a tragic event, stuff happens, and, you know, I had what to say on the right, but I wasn't going to politicize it like the left. And then, like you said, lo and behold, for three weeks straight, they did the most shameless politicizing of of, an, of a tragedy that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Um, and then it turns out that the more we find out, it actually is a federal issue in some ways. You mentioned one very important element that I think is the most forgotten issue here. Yes, there was incompetence. Yes, there was malfeasance. Yes, it had very little to do with guns. But there's something going on. In almost every county pushed by the federal government and it's called criminal justice reform. Think, think in Im- a comprehensive immigration reform. I call it deform. What they're trying to do, the very same people that are virtue signaling over guns, these very same people have an agenda of jailbreak to tear down all of the tough policing the tough sentencing, um, all of the more aggressive criminal justice laws that led to the precipitous and miraculous decline in violent crime for the last 23 years, since 1993, one of the, if not the most miraculous social trend, one of the only positive social trends we've actualized in this country in recent years, by the way, coinciding with the same period of time when the proliferation of gun ownership and gun carry permits skyrocketed, by the way. Um, And they have these grant programs, like you mentioned, the Promise Program, but it's not unique to Broward, where it used to be in the 90s, it was a stigma to be weak on crime. My mayor here, or former mayor, Martin O'Malley of Baltimore, before he became governor and a presidential candidate running to the left of Hillary Clinton, this man arrested people left and right because even Democrats wanted that. Everyone wanted to be tough on crime. Look how quickly it changed. You have all these libertarian think tanks, conservative think tanks pushing criminal justice reform, c- criminal justice reform there's this <laughs> stigma against arresting people, particularly juveniles. This is a very important component because a lot of people are asking you know forty five complaints issued against this guy he brought weapons to school, was assaulting people. why wasn 't he ever expelled much less arrested bingo that th- this is going on. Has nothing to do. Forget about mental illness and mass shootings. This is a general criminal problem. It's very evident. You could Google it. In my hometown, Baltimore, um, spike in juvenile crime, juvenile uh, violence, unprecedented. We have that major problem here because of the jailbreak policies and legislation. You want to know about talk about violence in schools and why we're going to have more of that? Because you know what? Essentially, the left wing narrative is that the that the Republicans have allowed them to get away with. Lock up the guns and let out the criminals.
2: You know, Daniel, it, it, it reminds me of how they fudge and, and, uh, and gerrymander, if you will, unemployment statistics. Uh, when we read Broward County and then its neighboring Miami Dade County, uh, we've read a number of articles, and Joe and I covered this last week extensively on the Hagman Daily Show, where the, as, essentially the order of the day was, let's get crime stats down. By being looser on crime. And that's essentially what you're saying, is it not?
0: Exactly, exactly. That's why they didn't deal with him. Um, there's grant money that you could get if, if you, um, establish these memorandums and agreements to do as much as possible to work with juvenile quote, outside of the criminal justice system. Now, a lot of people will throw these straw men, you know, like, same thing with immigration, like, oh, we need amnesty for the people that are going to cure cancer and our valedictorians. You know, oh, come on, you know, we don't need to be throwing people in jail who skip school smoking one day, you know. It, but but it, it's, it's a systemic culture of leniency that they've placed in many of these jurisdictions where there's a stigma against arresting at all costs because they get more Federal funding, and nobody is talking about cutting off those federal programs before throwing more money at you know these phony uh, school safety programs um, you know dressing up being the, the arsonist dressing up as the firefighter. this is the problem there's another aspect to this too, and that's the Baltimore effect and, and your listeners need to hear about this I, I'm from Baltimore. I wrote an article on the Baltimore effect on plotting on a graph showing how Baltimore's murder rate skyrocketed. Baltimore now, for 2017, became the murder capital of the country, meaning Baltimore is, is tiny compared to Chicago because everyone's moving out. It lost half its population. Um, but per capita, it has the highest murder rate in the country. That happened after they passed the toughest gun law in the nation. You know, Democrats are talking about universal background checks. I'll give you one better. In Baltimore, you need a license to own a gun. Forget about to carry. You're not allowed to carry. To own a gun, you have to go through a whole licensing process with getting certified and training and fingerprinted, and it takes two months. I mean, it's worse than California. And right after that, it became the murder capital of the country. Why? Precisely because they take the guns out of the hands of the innocent so they can't protect themselves. They have terrible Um, They they declare war on the police, space to destroy, if you remember the Baltimore mayor. They're going to give criminals, quote, space to destroy. Um, uh, Terrible juvenile laws. And then now, you want to raise your blood pressure. Just today, the Baltimore mayor, Catherine Pugh, announced that she's going to use city funding to have 3,000 school students take off from school, go to the um, March for Lies uh, March and, uh, m- m- you know, March 24th, uh, for gun control. And she's gonna pay for their lunch and busing and t-shirts. And I'm thinking, you piece of, you know what? Is it nice? I mean, I mean th- <laughs> th- think about that. Think about that. Talk about a glass jaw. Talk about appalling hypocrisy. You have the toughest laws of guns in the nation and the worst crime, particularly from juveniles that are, I mean, in my neighborhood, and you hear it in my voice, my neighborhood, people are scared. I live a little just outside in the suburbs, but very close to the city line. Um, my neighbors are scared to throw their garbage out at night. You have the carjackings from these juveniles that... Um, were found to have five felonies within six months as catch and release. And they're from some of these very violent students that are in her broken schools. When she needs to fix her own schools, she's taking off time from school and using our money to advocate for policies that led to the highest murder rate. And but, why not? Just,
2: just like the yes. mayor of Oakland in her remarks, just like Sheriff... Israel and his victory lap last week, uh, pontificating about his leadership abilities and uh, breaking his own arm, patting himself on the back. Our guest is Daniel Horowitz. Daniel Horowitz writes for conservativereview.com. His article, How Chain Migration Will Create a Permanent Democrat Majority, that's your start point, listeners. That's your start point. Conservativereview.com. Follow Daniel on uh, Twitter. We do. uh, It's at RMC. And then the C is conservative, so it's at capital R, capital M, capital C, conservative, uh, on Twitter. Uh, Daniel, we've got about a minute, and Joe's going to take us out, but uh, anything coming up for you, any speaking events, uh, any uh, new articles coming up? And, of course, we want to mention, before I let you go, Stolen Sovereignty, it covers immigration A to Z, Z to A. Daniel?
0: Well, if you like hearing this counter-narrative on the facts and Philosophy and history and laws and some of the important issues that you're not going to get from, you know, fake conservative media, Fox News, or, you know, the Republican Party. You go to conservativereview.com. I have articles out every single day on an array of fiscal, social, national security issues, you name it. And in addition, we have a podcast, The Conservative Conscience, twice a week, where we, we really delve deeply into these issues beyond the talking points And um, look, you know, you follow me on at RM Conservative, and you'll see even more stuff I don't have time to write on we'll address there. And that's the thing, we just need to get the truth out because I think a lot of people would be receptive to it if it would only break through the clamor and just paralysis of these two feckless parties.
1: Amen. Our guest, Daniel Horowitz, go to conservativereview.com Check out his latest piece. Trump is obligated to follow immigration law, not the rulings of district judges. Daniel, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Stolen Sovereignty is his book, fantastic book. Uh, it was great to have you on. Can't wait to have you back on in the future, as I'm sure this immigration debate, as well as many of these other things we're talking about, are not going to go anywhere. If anything, they're going to become more confusing and more confusing and we're going to see more of the same. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
0: Thank you. God bless, and it's time
1: for a beer. Hey, I'll second that. Have one for me. we still got another hour left with Stan so I have to wait for my beer. But when we come back, Stan Dale will be with us. Don't go anywhere on this Tuesday edition of the Hagman Report. <laughs> Edition of the Hagman Report each and every Tuesday. We are joined by Stan the Man, Stan Dale, from Standale.com. That is the website. Once you get there, go on the right-hand side, and you can go to the guest uh, show images, and there you can click on those and follow along with the research and topics that Stan has put together to talk about well on the Hagman Report. Stan, it is great to have you back on the show. What's front and center on your radar?
4: Oh the world is coming apart, coming unglued. <laughs> we At lunch, we sit down and watch the news on Fox and stuff like that, and you think, holy cow, this is giving me an ulcer. Uh, look at the things in the White House, look at the things in the Middle East, and uh, which is the worst? I think um, probably I was surprised to see that the advisor, another advisor, economic advisor, uh, quit the White House, quit Trump.
1: President Cohen, Trump. Gary Cohen, yeah, over yeah, the, I, the Goldman I Sachs president.
4: It. Yeah, I understand. I guess he his views on global economic, uh, you know, models he is in disagreement with what Trump wants to do as an isolationist. Um, however, I don't agree with uh, Cohen. Uh, in this case, the world economy has been milking, you know, stealing from American essence in these terrible trade agreements, and. If we don't turn this around, we're going to disappear at the hands of, you know, all the other nations who are milking us. And there's a point where you have to say, this far, no further, we're, we're taking it back. And I agree with the President on that. But when I saw, you know, that, that Mr. Cohen had resigned, it it didn't make me sad because it's like, you know, they're, they're deserting President Trump, all those that have been with him for so long. It makes you wonder what's really going on in the White House.
1: Yeah, you know, I I found it kind of weird that he would leave over the uh, the tariffs being charged on the aluminum and steel. Uh, yeah. We know he's a free trade guy. They, one of the articles on CNBC said that it was a planned departure. So I don't know if it is strictly because of the break on Trump and his agenda and trade versus uh, Gary's views on trade. It seems like a, a minimal thing to to leave your post there, but who knows? As I said, the guy was the former president of Goldman Sachs. I'm sure he has a number of job opportunities waiting for him.
4: And a number of deep state contacts, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Goldman Sachs, give me a break. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Anyway, that was that was lunch, and uh, you know the the hard burn of lunch. But um, hey. It, before I get too far into the other, you know, like serious news, what's happening over your way
1: with this uh, snow and wind and stuff? Are you getting any of that? Oh yeah, this uh, nor this nor'easter, Stan. We uh, on on Thursday it came through our area and it dumped about eight to ten inches of the heaviest, wettest snow, and it knocked us off the air on Thursday. We uh, we were mid show, uh, about where we are right now, into the broadcast, and the power went out. And it stayed out for over 24 hours, so we could not do a show Friday. And it passed by real quick, but now it's causing a lot of havoc over on the East Coast, everywhere from Maryland up through Maine. And I'm wondering, is it doubling back? Has it doubled back and, and now uh, is hitting the coast again, or is it just lingering over there? I'm not sure, but it is creating a lot of problems with, with travel, with the roads. You have cities like Boston and New York City poised to get, anywhere from, you know, 2 to 10 inches of snow. And if it's the same kind of snow we got, that's they're in for some trouble.
4: Yeah. I'm looking here at the uh, Null wind map, uh, the Null School wind map, you know, that shows uh, live traces of wind patterns and pressures and stuff. And it's uh, not unusual, but a uh, couple of what we're seeing here with the snowfall uh, in your area, there are two centers of um Mm, uh, not cyclonic, but they look like it' cyclonic winds but where the they're circulating around a kind of an eye, one off the coast of Oregon and one off the coast well upper you know near near maine uh, which was' you know, it's probably past uh, its main influence, but it, it could act as a blocking force to turn things around on the continent uh, on, on uh, lower 48 which might be why you're seeing that now. While I'm talking to you, I'm just going to punch up here and look at the jet stream and see what it looks like.
1: Wow. I'll pull this yeah. Stuff well, up too. yeah.
4: The jet stream is certainly interesting. It's coming right across the, um, diving down from Washington, Oregon state, down in through Texas and uh, up over your area there, uh, you know, just south of the Great Lakes and up into to Maine, Northeast United States. Uh, that's Usually, the driver of the lower atmospheric storms and things. And, uh, it does look as though the jet stream is breaking up over the Pacific, um uh, into two streams. So, this, this crazy weather, I think, is going to continue. Sadly, you're getting our moisture, you know, any snow that we get is kind of like dry powder. Yeah. So I guess it, we could use some of your stuff, but <laughs> anyway.
1: Yeah. Oh, this stuff is, uh, yeah, it, it it's basically, uh, Big raindrops that that fall in the like snow, it, it's it's pretty amazing.
4: Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to check one lower altitude thing. That we'll get on with some other stuff here. Let me check it. Seven
1: hundred. And, and Stan, which setting brings up the jet stream on this Earth null? Oh, uh,
4: go to height and go to two hundred and fifty hectopascals. Uh, down okay. about two. Okay, and and uh, you'll find that quite interesting.
1: Ah, okay. Oh, yeah. Writing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, interesting indeed.
4: Well, this is a very, a very useful map. It has other things other than, than air currents and stuff. It has ocean currents. It has uh, um, chemical pollution. Uh, you know, it shows basically uh, uh, which countries are coastlines or you know areas that got CO two or carbon monoxide or sulfur dioxide, like from volcanoes even. And if you look at your pro- projection options there, check option E. Which gives you a flat map, and then check uh say chem for, uh, mode chem for particles or sorry for uh, chemistry, and okay. you can see where the carbon dioxide is in the southern hemisphere primarily right now, and the sulfur dioxide is in the northern hemisphere uh new England states uh probably byproduct of some sort of manufactured, certainly in china <laughs> China, if you look at that, yeah really, really bad. But uh, this this is a great tool for people. I I'm so glad that NASA and uh, you know GS5 and GMAO are putting all this information out for us. Um, it uh, you can go back, you can dial dates back and forth on the control line there and uh, see where it was yesterday, that kind of stuff. So I do I do recommend that people have a look at that.
1: Um, yeah, very very handy tool, and you can do so much with it. All the different settings and options. And I was just looking at some of the different views, uh, you know, you can basically look at the world from upside down, you know, from the North Pole. or uh, It's pretty pretty neat.
4: It is. And, in fact, it's helped me in some of my studies on um, gravitational issues uh, with uh, looking at other planets like Saturn and uh, Jupiter, the, the, you know, the gas giants. Uh, I looked at the poles. I think it was, uh, oh, I hope I'm not wrong. I think it was Jupiter, not Saturn, but one of the two had... A, a NASA shot, which showed uh, like a hexagon pattern forming around its north pole from the wind and uh then I went to this uh the small earth thing here, and i uh used the the o view, which is a kind of a you know that the round earth view and I turned up the south pole and then uh, looked at uh, various wind patterns on it and I could see on ours even today, let's see how many we've got, we've got one, two, three, four, five, five or six vortices uh, around Antarctica and suddenly it dawned on me between these vortices, they can actually at certain altitudes form, a, a you know, like a hexagonal pattern between them and that might be what's happening on the North Pole of Jupiter or Saturn, whichever one I saw that uh, that uh, regular, excellent shape. It's probably posted somewhere, and I just missed the explanation of it. But anyway, as I say, this is this is an incredible tool uh, to to look at the high altitude and mid altitude jet stream and now particles. Anyway, go and have a look at it. Uh, it's earth. Net and n u
1: l n u l l school dot net earth right null school dot net yeah
4: and uh you and i both find that a fascinating tool and it is that uh right uh let's get back to the show images page there's a number of issues um let's see here i think image forty five will start with earthquakes image forty five shows the Richter five earthquakes Over the last two weeks worldwide. And looking at this, you think, well, okay, there's some over in Indonesia, and and it looks like there's a few over in New Guinea, and, you know, down at the fault line there, and a couple north of New Zealand, and none of the United States. And it's kind of not telling you much when you look at it at this scale, because the the little dots overlap each other. So if you go back then to image uh, 46. that shows a close-up of one area of that world map, the Richter 5 earthquakes over the last two weeks in New Guinea in the southern highlands after that seven-point-some-odd Richter earthquake there. Uh, I'm showing on this map 97 earthquakes that are Richter 5 or so in the last two weeks. Um, and I'm trying to figure out why it is reverberating like this, but, you know, the aftershocks normally get less and less and less. What you're seeing go down to fives and fours and all of a sudden back up to 6.4 and then back down, it is like it's a rubber membrane there for the surface and it's vibrating from this one massive earthquake. Um, So now I look over at image 47 to to the right of that and I went to Google Earth to have a look at what could be causing that. Now, I know that New Guinea was part of the aftermath of that big asteroid, I, I call it the, the Kutapa uh, asteroid that hit the east coast of India, started the tsunamis and horrible flooding that made the flood of the Bible of Noah. And that asteroid uh, dived in and went all the way to form the Band of Sea and quite possibly could have sunken in underneath New Guinea because looking at the NASA maps, I've talked about this before, six and a half cubic, uh, sorry, six and a half million million square miles of ocean around New Guinea has been pushed up as a big bump or pimple on the you know, the surface of the Earth, and the corresponding dent from the mass that was moved over there is where India used to be when that asteroid hit. So it dived down there and shoved a whole lot of seabed over underneath New Guinea. So the activity in New Guinea, uh, like many other sites have talked about where asteroids hit in the ancient days, is showing earthquake activity along the stress lines that form these highlands or this, you know, very volcanic uh, mountain range. When I started looking into this, trying to figure out if there were a volcano close to that, the closest one that they report is 50 miles away. You can see that in this image, it's called Doma, D-O-M-A, Peak Volcano. And I thought, well, okay, it's, it's, you know, it's 50 miles away. These earthquakes are occurring on the lead edge of the ridge. Uh, It it was the result of this all being pushed up by that asteroid uh, pushing dirt and stuff underneath it. And then to the left of that, I found another thing which is almost positively a large ancient volcano, but I can find nowhere. In fact, if if the audience guys, you know, if you can find what the name of this particular volcano is, I'd be interested. But it's an old volcano, there's no question about it, you can see the the kind of um, you know, puckered lip uh, around the sides of it where the lava flowed down, and you can see where it broke open, and and uh, the, the insides of it washed down into the valley there, and that's even closer to where this whole swarm of earthquakes is occurring, and, and to where the the main seven point some odd earthquake occurred, you know, in the, in the last couple of weeks. So if you know, if you go back now then to image forty eight, I took four views of this unknown old volcano. And there are Google Earth um, uh, coordinates there for you. It's the lower right-hand part of each of these fr- uh, shots of the same uh, crater. And if, if, like I say, if you can find out about this, I'd appreciate it. But if you look at that, and, you know, zoom it up. Just click on it, zoom it up. You can see that this is not some just pushed-up mass. This is the was remains of a collapsed volcano, and it's big. And as I said, uh, it's kind of very close to. Um, you know, this whole flurry or swarm of earthquakes just uh, kind of south of what I think would be, southwest, southwest East. So anyway, have a look at it and these four images that I took around it just to show you that it, it is a collapsed uh, volcanic structure. And let me know if you find the name of that because I want to have a bit of a study about that later.
1: Okay, and then we always, <clears throat> I always follow the earthquakes and the earthquake maps and and to see some of the activity and uh, i love your research on on the uh on the fault lines and as to what causes it it's amazing stand to listen to you talk about you know certain activities and in, in one area or region uh you know causing huge disruptions in, in other parts and other regions and and the magma flows that that change and uh just when i just said magma something came to my mind was there a volcanic a pretty massive volcanic explosion in the last few weeks somewhere maybe in indonesia did you hear about that
4: there there was i think in indonesia somewhere yeah what about it
1: no no i was just wondering i wasn't sure if um it it seemed like it was pretty bad that it it shot ash you know miles into the atmosphere and that it was a, a, a pretty nasty eruption and I haven't heard much of the news about it with, uh, you know, all the shooting and everything else going on. I don't know if it just made its way, uh, if it wasn't really newsworthy or if it really wasn't new, I mean, a, an event worth noting to begin with. But I remember yeah, when I it was, it was, people it
4: was Cinnabong volcano, um, okay. on February 22nd. And uh, that's the one you're talking about. You can just look up S-I-N-A-B-U-N-G, um, in Indonesia, uh, as you uh, stated. And uh, it tells you the story about, uh, how dangerous it is and the evacuations of people, that kind of stuff. Um, okay, okay. Uh, I'm seeing some other things that are quite uh, quite intriguing. Um, uh, even in Peru, uh, you know, believe it or not, the ground is splitting. And it's not just a little split, you know, like dried, cracked ground. It's splitting down, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 feet in some portions of it. And they've had to evacuate a whole village there because it's been happening before a little bit of time, but now it's, it's so massive, it's starting to damage houses and stuff that are falling to the edge of these uh, crevices, these cracks that are forming on the hillside. This is happening. There is a, a big crack forming in Arizona. There are cracks forming elsewhere in the United States as well. What is causing this? Is it the stretching uh, of the planet? Because I thought first that, okay, the ones happening in the United States in the lower 48. Were possibly because of the, the tilt in the uh, lower 48 plate, and that the western edge of it was starting to stress and break off. You know, as we we expect it will happen eventually, into.
1: Interesting. Well, looking at your, your show images page here, Stan, I want to... Is there some, been something going on in the sky with the sounds? I, I've been hearing um, a number of people reporting on things. You know, we used to hear those trumpets, and I've also been seeing reports of... Uh, one instance, for example, was a report of a meteor, and there are these sites that monitor incoming meteors, with uh, I guess sound, and they they triangulate uh, through different satellites so they can kind of get an idea of the energy and uh, whatnot what comes through. And let me see if I have one of the sites up here. But I I, I came across a, a one of these where you know meteors when they come through through these detection areas are uh, you know very quick. They they they're not sustained where you know they might show up a blimp on the radar for a second or two. What I saw in this video that I'm looking for that I will try to send to you was a maybe two to three-minute sustained anomaly in one of these meteor detection uh, tools. That it, and, and the question was asked, what is going on in outer space? And I didn't know what could cause something like that. I know that was kind of out of left field and um, off topic, but uh, I'm going to send this to you.
4: All right. You know, but, when you think about it, uh, looking at some of our satellite reentries, you know, in the early days of the space program, the guys kind of came in, not at a steep angle, they tried to kind of, um hit at an angle that would, uh, produce the least amount of heat on the shield, the heat shield of the uh, reentry capsule. Um, and even those it didn't last like three minutes, um as far as the blackout state. Now... Hey Stan,
1: I don't mean to interrupt you, but we're getting tons of static feedback.
4: I don't know what's causing it. I do hear that. Um, let me... Uh, are you there?
1: I don't know what you just did, but it went away. Uh, I just checked the connection on my uh,
4: phone thing here. I guess that was it. Sorry about that, Guy. No, uh, no problem. Anyway, uh, depending upon the shallowness of, uh, say, an incoming asteroid that or a meteorite that may be not traveling at uh, seventeen or 18,000 miles an hour, maybe it's traveling slower, when that comes in a bit shallow, uh, I guess it could, under certain circumstances, last that long. Um, certainly, maybe a satellite coming down. You know, uh, uh, the Chinese have a, a city that is, uh, uh, well, they call it the city of the sky, or whatever the Chinese uh, yeah. uh, station there. Uh, that is coming down. And uh, I think that when that does come down, it may be like uh, what the Hopi said, you know, the house or the, you know, the habitation in the sky falls to the Earth, it's a signal of the end times of their prophecies. but uh, you know the arrival of the blue kachina. But anyway, um, it's going to be about a month before that space station, the Chinese space station crashes to Earth and we may revisit these strange sounds and how long it takes it to uh, uh, thoroughly burn up and, and crash into the Earth once it drops out of orbit. There may be stuff going on up there that we don't know about as far as space war as well, people knocking out each other's satellites. There are about 4,000 functional satellites in orbit, a little bit over that at the moment, and uh, various countries you know, have them up there, you know, Israel, China, uh, North Korea, Duck, um, and then, um, you know, the United States, Russia and all the rest of them, but um, the, the, the war will be in space as well as down on Earth when it starts because major players will be trying to take out the other guy's satellites as far as uh, um, observation or spying, you know, And as far as uh, being able to launch nuclear devices uh, or even, you know, projectiles uh, down into the earth at the enemy, so all this is going to happen, and we're going.
1: can't find the uh the video i was looking for but that's that's okay um there there seems to be so much going on in in space i watch as much as i can and after that nor'easter came through here we had uh, over the weekend just the the clearest sky and you have a little bit of the moonlight and that reflects off the snow so it, it makes it kind of bright outside but right. you had no clouds in the sky and i uh I I spent some time bundled up out there watching the the sky, as I love to do. And as always, you know, you see stuff out there that, and I have my, you know, my computer, my phone. I have my satellite trackers. I have my, uh, you know, different tools to make sure that what I'm looking at, that I can identify whatever I'm looking at. But sure enough, there is stuff out there that is flying around, and you don't know. You can't identify what it is, and it always intrigues me. And I see this stuff all the time. Most of it seems like it could be space junk moving in a straight line, but sometimes you see the things that look like they're flying around out in deep space, uh, which is, uh, you know, leaves your imagination going. But I, I just—Do you
4: have an image intensifier uh, on your, uh, your telescope or, or binoculars or anything? No, I don't. If you could get one of those, I, I borrowed a friend's one time and looked at it uh, up at the sky like you're talking about. And it intensifies those very weak uh, light signals from things moving up there. Mm-hmm. And you'd think you were looking into a petri dish full of microbes. I mean, it was busy, like you're saying, going all over the place. Yeah. And, You know, I, it's amazing what's up there.
1: It is. There's. I, I don't know. I don't know if you saw. There was a video that made the news uh, late last week out of Arizona in the morning, where it was a, a local news looking at one of their, their cameras, the top of the building cameras, and in the sky it looked like, um, I don't even know how to describe it, it looked like a bunch of, uh, <laughs> I guess to be crude, uh, like eggs, uh, like, like sperm almost, with the tails, and there was hundreds of them swimming yeah, around I in the that. sky. I saw And that. then they, they came back the next day and tried to say that they solved the mystery. It was seagulls, which made no sense because if anybody saw the video, it, it was not a, an, an animal. But it looked, it reminded me of what, something you might see in, in the deep ocean. And I wonder how much, you know, of that invisible type life or microbes are in the sky or in outer space that look like what you just described, uh, that are there that we just don't know about.
4: Interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. Once okay, you get a final on this uh, Chinese space station, if you live in New Zealand, you'll have a good look at it when it comes back in. Apparently, uh, New Zealand is in the, uh, the descent path of this uh, space station that's going to crash to Earth in a month. So I, I remember when we were in Australia uh, over in uh, Perth that uh, the oh uh, space lab, the first space lab that NASA put up came down and uh, actually I have a piece of
1: Is that the no? I just wanted to know what your thoughts on on that video from Arizona on what those were. But is that what what you just talked about? Is that what the news was warning about months ago that could possibly fall back over land in Europe somewhere?
4: What that the, the Chinese space station.
1: Okay, so the, this is a, a timed reentry. This isn't a, a
4: no, space. I no, mean, they lost control of it, and they're trying okay. to figure out you know where it's going to hit. Uh, it's yeah. interesting that it's going to hit the southern hemisphere, which is. Just no.
3: Stand,
2: John John Robertson sitting in for Doug Hagman this evening. How are you? It's good to it's hey, good to have John. you I, uh, for for all the time we've been acquainted. I believe this is our first time on there together, and I've been excited for the last several hours since Doug uh, offered me the honor of sitting in, and uh, I've been I've just been squirming in my chair the first half hour, really enjoying the dialogue between Joe and yourself, and um, I, I don't have. Quite the the acumen of looking up in the sky that that Joe and yourself do, but I've always been fascinated by it ever since. As a very little kid, I was born in 1972, Stan. So my family and I went out to the darkest region in our hometown to look at Space Lab flyover, probably in 1977, maybe. I want to say something like that. Very I had a clear. very very sharp memory of that but what i'd like to do with your permission stan is switch gears we've got you we're about halfway through our time with you and i notice in on your show page in um graphics 52 53 and 54 uh we're talking about emp electromagnetic pulse and the reason i i wanted to with your permission switch gears into this arena is because uh in much of my study the last three or four days uh i opened the show tonight talking about uh, President Vladimir Putin's remarks to the Russian Duma uh, Thursday, March first, 2018, and his demonstration of the new Russian uh, weapon systems and their capabilities, and of course, you know, North Korea tends to get pushed to the back burner for a few days, and then it kind of comes back up in the news cycle. But we know that that threat uh, certainly never goes away. It just gets it gets reprioritized in the news cycle. Uh, Stan, I just want to hand it to you because in my opinion, for the seven or eight years that I've been aware of your work, Steve Quails, the Hagmans, etc., I always felt that there were two things that could, that could hit society so hard that it would change our lives from the moment we wake up tomorrow. And those two are different in one way. An economic implosion we would see coming, particularly those of us who now do this for a living. But an EMP, is an instantaneous, overnight game-changer, and I know that Holly and yourself were very early to the party with the publication of Dare to Prepare, so you're the exact right person to ask about this. Where are we at with EMP? Is it as dangerous a, a possibility with asymmetric warfare as it was, say, Eight or ten years ago, when we when we would hear these scenarios about you know Iran perhaps launching from the Gulf of Mexico, are we in a greater danger zone? Lesser, Stan? What say you?
4: Well, John, um, I think we're in a greater danger situation, a, a very volatile situation. The deal with North Korea is interesting. Uh, as I said last week, I think that the North Korean threats. Uh, are basically kind of a red herring pulling our U.S. resources over into that area to contend with North Korea and a possible nuclear launch. Um, they could do it uh, with the help of China, and uh, I don't think Russia will, but Russia's on the border there of North Korea with a lot of troops, and China's put some troops there to manage the situation, primarily, I think, if the U.S. puts boots on the ground in North Korea. Uh, the the recent, like in the last two days, uh, Kim Jong-un saying that he will meet and discuss terms of a denuclearizing, you know, getting rid of the nukes in North Korea. You know, that, that uh, if you believe that, then I've got a, a number of things I can tell you that are off-world, I'll tell you right now. But uh, he's lying. He's just playing the, the, the shady character and the weak character. Well, okay, I guess we'll talk peace now. You know, I've made my point. And uh, that'll stop the blockades and you know uh, uh, of food and other things that we used to be able to get. You know, but um, uh, he's, he's he's just a red herring. The Russians and the Chinese are looking at the United States. They are looking at that for a number of reasons. China has its own set of, of reasons, economic and otherwise. Russia has some economic reasons as well, but also Russia is down in Syria at the moment, re-establishing a, a base down in the Middle East. You know, After the fall of the Soviet Union when they came in with Russia, they wanted to have the Syrian access, uh, uh to the uh, seaport down there in the Mediterranean. And they've made deals with, um, uh, what's his name, Bashar, uh, uh, the, the ruler there of Syria. The Iranians are coming in, uh, you know, with, um, Soleimani, General Soleimani uh, into the area. It is a very confusing arena as to who is beating who at the moment. Uh, Allegedly, they were to get rid of ISIS, but um, now that Russia's down there and has moved in military uh, weapons and stuff into the area, and Iran is up on the border doing its thing, and certainly trying to be nuclearized as well, uh, Israel is a threat, really a threat, and uh, from Lebanon to the north, uh, from Syria to the north east through the Golan Heights, uh, and even from Jordan, who's getting irritated with uh, uh, Israel at the moment. So when I see, like Prince Salman at the moment uh, going over in to visit with the the, uh, the royals over there in uh, England and trying to negotiate a peaceful alliance between the 41 Arab nations, so that he can then be friends with Israel and fight against Iran. I don't believe that either. I believe this is a red herring. You know, hes uh, it's a ploy to get uh, perhaps Israel to not be so concerned about Saudi Arabia and the allied uh, nations, but to be concerned about Iran. So if Mohammed bin Salman moves Saudi Arabian troops and the other members of his alliance uh, up toward Syria and Iran um as i've said num- numerous times he could pull you know a surprise turn his troops left his weapons left and five or six miles away he's going to start hitting north israel uh it's, it's a very dangerous thing to let him that close even though he's uh, after thirty-five hundred years or so offered a peace branch an olive branch to name yahoo to israel let's be friends and and you kind of have to stand back and go oh yeah really uh And he's allegedly going against ISIS and against Iran, because the Iranians are a different kind of Islam. They are Shiite. And you can remember which ones are Shiite and Sunni. Uh, The Iranians are the big threat nuclear-wise. And so when you see them, you can say, Oh, Shiite! Uh, And I'll remember, uh, help you remember this, The the bad guys.
2: I had that down already, but nonetheless, a great joke.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... um, uh, Israel has what they call the Samson option uh, with their nuclear uh, arsenal and other weapons they've developed. And their intent is to only use them should they become overrun by invading troops or whoever. Um, so if this does happen, uh, their Samson option is going to put a few nukes into Iran, maybe into Lebanon, uh, certainly Saudi Arabia, uh, and invading forces. We are very close to a problem there. Uh, Netanyahu has been kind of the rock trying to get um, Israel organized to defend itself, uh, peacefully, you know, negotiated-wise, but also military-wise. And he's at risk of losing his seat over there because of this stupid thing one of his opposition party guys said about him accepting some champagne and stuff as a bribe from some guy. Stupid. But anyway, he's on the edge of getting, uh, you know, unseated over there, which will create turmoil in the Israeli government. And perfect time for a foreign power... That on the border to come after him, and here President Trump has got his own problems over here in our country with, you know, uh, people arguing against whatever he's doing with the economy and various other things that are, I think, good things, but still he's in a position that's precarious. And so when these two, uh, who are the major players, in this whole Middle East thing as far as the conservative and Jewish side, when they're at risk, and uh, it, it tells me that we are very close to something popping, and I, I think of Damascus over, uh, you know, in Syria. Damascus has been an inhabited city for thousands of years. I think it's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and and in Isaiah, uh, you know, and I think uh, Jeremiah may have mentioned some about it, but he is, Damascus is um, going to be destroyed overnight, virtually. Um, it will become a ruinous heap. Now, I've said before that there are two ways, one, by an act of God, and, and two, by Israeli you know bombing of Damascus. Now, uh, underneath uh, that uh, picture you're talking about there as far as uh, 52, 53, 54, look at 50, uh, image 50. It's talking about Israel getting upset and, and showing images they took from their satellites of the Iranian missile base in Syria near Damascus. Now, as close enough to Damascus, if they were to nuke this arsenal, that it would probably cause fires and destruction in Damascus. So that could be one way that overnight Damascus becomes a ruinous heap that no one would inhabit again. It says forever it will be uninhabited and and destroyed. Radiation and fallout kind of stuff would do it, especially if it ignites some of their nuclear material that they've got stored at this base. If it were an act of God... A ruinous heap. Uh, There are uh, probably 10 or 15 of these you can see on Google Earth uh, in Syria there around Damascus. They're black chunks of stone that have been burped up by volcanic processes underneath that area. And there have been a number of volcanoes up the Glen Heights and south of there over the years since uh, the time of uh, uh, King David. And I think 13 of them have buried in lava most of what was the the home of the giants where the King the uh, Bashan lived. Anyway, that whole area is very volcanic and it's producing some fizzled volcanoes which make these black uh, stone heaps and they call them ruinous heaps in the local language. Now, one of those may erupt right underneath Damascus and cover it in this black rubble from a, a failed volcano. In that case, Damascus would not be inhabited forever because it would be a mess with all that junk all over it. So, there's two options I see. And certainly, the nuclear option is very close with all of the military uh, equipment and men in, in motion in the Middle East. Um, we, any tick of the clock, you get up and you're going to either have no power at all because we've been nuked with an EMP, or you're going to get up and see that the Middle East is aflame, I know that when that happens, just as it does or just before, America is going to be neutralized. As far as a military threat in the Middle East, whether it's economic, whether it's civil disorder in this country, you know, uh, um, attended revolutions, that kind of stuff, uh, the Soviet, the, sorry, the, the Russians want America to be wounded and weakened so that it can't defend Israel. So, at about the same time that they're going to attack Israel over the Middle East, whoever it is, America is going to have to be neutralized as far as the military power in the area. So look for those things. I mean, any, any morning, get up and expect to see something like that happening here in the Middle East or at the same time. It, it and, is upon us.
2: And what better way to neutralize uh, American assets really all the way across the board except perhaps a, a, a just a very small percentage of hardened military assets than an EMP? Now, Stan, like yourself, I've studied EMPs for many, many years. I don't profess to be an expert by any means on them but I've you know I've read Dr Peter Vincent Prize work and you know read the books by William Forgesen and that congressional report I think that goes back to 2004 if memory serves and uh, so my question to you is this if the United States were to literally be be blasted back to what about the 1870s 1880s uh, automobiles no longer work none of the IT infrastructure works more probably most likely uh, the three grids that service the country, if they didn't fail in total, they would fail based on cascade effect or domino effect. Stan, what nation states have the capability to do that to us?
4: Well, uh, Pakistan, North Korea, China, Russia. Uh, let me think if there's another one. Those have the the uh, method and the motive to do it. I'm just trying to think if there's any other thing we. Yeah, those five are the ones that we worry about the most at the moment. I mean, because you can park a freighter in international waters off our shores and launch a rocket, you know, up into space over the United States about 250 miles. It is it is hoped that we would be able to intercept. Such I mean, you, you know, people don't have hand pumps to
2: pull it up out at the gas station. And uh, not only that, but you'd be you'd be demonstrating yourself at a time of very, very serious, high stress, and people literally running to and fro, thinking, "My goodness, we should have stored water. We should have stored food. Uh, we're we're not ready for this." You, you don't you don't want to be the one guy driving a car down the road any more than you want to be the one house on your block that's lit up like it's a normal thursday night right.
1: hear that generator uh, outside
2: right? yeah i get that fire up that generator stan we've got uh we've got uh, about 5 6 minutes left with you here this evening i'd like to do this um thank you for explaining emp to us a little bit tonight now you have this this product, and whereas I have a brief chat with either Holly or yourself pretty much every Tuesday, i got to be honest with you, I'm more or less in the dark as to what the product is. Uh, I don't know if it comes in a big box, little box, 12 boxes, uh, is it a monthly payment? I have no idea what exactly mm. this is. Would you like to take a few minutes, kind of unpack this, explain it to the listeners, and then I'll make this my final comment for this evening. Stan, we'll go ahead and have Joe take us out.
4: Okay, well, uh, uh, John, the... Um The article there in the top left of the show images page shows a newspaper article that came out, uh, I think it was Sunday, uh, of uh, Tim, my partner in this, explaining what an EMP attack is and how the device works. You will see a picture, if you click on that, you will see a picture of the device in his hand and on our websites, we tell you the exact dimensions, six inches by this, this and that Uh, and it will fit inside the the bottom part, the the empty part of most. breaker boxes and fuse boxes and home, but you can't, we do have a model that you can fit outside on the wall and, and three wires go in uh, underneath the, the, the panel uh, inside to the breaker box and hook up to <laughs> the active and neutral, the active is the two faces and the neutral on the ground. It's a very simple thing, but what it does is this, it, in two ways it operates. The wires that come out of it are short antennas. Uh, and they are useful in detecting the EMP wave in addition to the electron cascade, the constant cascade of electrons that occurred during this. The the EMP the pulse that comes down the power line uh, travels slower than the actual electromagnetic wave from the EMP detonation. So, we have these short wires which act as an antenna to early detect the, the wave coming in at the same time. the lines in your house are detecting it and immediately this thing in 500 trillionths of a second shunts, turns off all your your electricity and shunts the incoming wave straight into ground and neutral in in the earth underneath your house. Um, The the secondary wave is the electron cascade coming in off of the power lines. Uh, That uh, is also shunted should the, the EM wave not hit you strong enough to kick our device off, which I doubt, but the device will keep all of your power Grounded, and not go into any of your appliances or any of your backup power or things, anything uh, until the voltage in the air or on the lines drops down to within the 50% margin that we allow on the various voltages that people have. Um, a solar EMP it lasts for minutes and hours sometimes with high voltage, like the, the Carrington event the, the late uh, or the mid 1800s. Um, our device would protect you from that because it would notice that the high voltage on the lines is too high, and it would shunt it to ground. And if it took three, four hours for it to normalize down to normal voltage, this thing would uh, keep your power from uh, going into the house. When the voltage gets back to normal, if there is a power supply like uh, the grid or uh, you know solar panels or wind generators, then it would let you have that power to run your house and your uh, devices inside. Some devices uh, won't be plugged in, and we suggest that you know those small devices go into a Faraday bag that you can buy online, just, you know, there are heaps of them, to wrap up things like uh, shortwave radios that you're not using, one of them for backup, that kind of stuff, but you don't have them plugged in all the time. Our device covers the things that are plugged into your home wiring um, and I, I guess that's you know the size of it. If you go to our uh, myEMPShield.com site, um, we have prepared resources there, links to various government papers and, and other people's explanations. Uh, explaining of what will survive an EMP, what tests have been done, what things failed, uh, in great detail, and uh, on that uh, that website by EMPShield.com, you can then look at our products that we have for home, uh, you know, and for um, uh, industrial complexes, for uh, Generac type uh, generators, for wind and uh, solar generators, all that kind of stuff. We do three phase versions, European versions, uh, you know. Asian versions, we have all those that can use our device um, and each device is calibrated for the area, you know, the, the country, let's say the voltage of this country, um, so it only takes about oh, a day or two for most.
1: sure and Stan I see you have a number of other media appearances upcoming anything you want to promote
4: mm, media appearances you mean like um, interviews Oh, yeah. interviews um, well um, let me just see which ones we've got up there um, oh that Hagman show is a good one. you ought to list to that one <laughs>
1: yeah tune into that no you got Pastor Robert
4: uh, Thibodeau Thibodeau yeah yeah Thibodeau yeah yeah his his uh
1: Seen a tax return in years. The student loan people take mine, and they have not stopped. So,
4: oh well, it's not a tax. It's not a refund. No, I got to pay.
1: I hear you there, Stan. Uh-oh. I used to have to do that too uh, until maybe four years ago. We started doing things the right way. So, uh, oh, you yeah. Know. Well, that's what I mean. You you have a whole different burden you're dealing with, where whereas we are much simpler. But, Stan, you've taken us to the end of the show. Fascinating, as always. Uh, great stuff. And, and we want to thank you and, and Holly uh, as well. And you guys um, keep up the great work. And have you started your gardens yet too early?
4: Uh, we're She's been weeding out some of the uh, grass and stuff that crept into the raised garden beds. And uh, we're looking at some seeds and things uh it's certainly going to be tomatoes then, because what we're
1: getting at the supermarket at the moment tastes like a red-colored cellophane. It's uh, I know. terrible. We uh, we have to have the snow melt out here first uh, again before we can start to uh, mess with the soil and whatnot. But absolutely, we'll be starting myself soon. Stan, thank you so much for joining us. You have a great week.
4: Thank you. Thank you, John. Bye bye now.
1: God bless. All right, guys, that'll do it for us. Another great show. If you joined us late, we had Bill Chapman on in the second segment. Then we were joined by Daniel Horowitz, who talked about immigration in his book, Uh State Sovereignty. Why can't I think of it? Stolen, Stolen Sovereignty. Thank you, John. And then Stan Deo took us out. I want to say thank you to Tech Eric, as well as all the Hagman listeners out there, Check the Hagman Report for update on my father's show, the Doug Hagman Radio Show. He has an update on Hagman Report about that. And we will be back tomorrow on the Hagman Daily Show with Stephen Menking in the second half of the show. And we'll be back tomorrow night. Have a great evening.